and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a good friend of mine, someone I had not had a chance to talk to in a very long time, and I'm so grateful that the show gave me a chance to reconnect with them from the band Righteous Jams, from the band Wrecking Crew, from the band 454 Big Block, from the band Skeletal Ambitions, from the TV series where he's the head writer and showrunner, The Mayans, Elgin James is on the show. And this is the longest episode of this podcast ever. And I am very excited for you to hear this. Uh, more on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedatapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about this podcast, letting everyone know that you know that we have this podcast where we put out a couple episodes a week. Normally it's about a couple episodes a week where uh, I talk to someone about how they got into punk and we go from there. Uh, you can also support this podcast by subscribing to it and rating it on your podcast platform of choice. You can further support this podcast. There's a lot of ways to support this thing now uh, by heading over to turnedoutapunk.com, especially if you're in America. Right now we're trying to figure out something for Canada because I know the shipping is a little difficult for Canada right now, um, but go to turnedoutapunk.com and check out the t-shirts that we have put up. My friend Corey and at Demented by Design has helped me put this together and I've done a run of shirts. There will be more coming out, different ones soon. Um, yeah, and they're designed by myself. And I think my my, da my, my dad did one too, which is our logo t-shirt. But uh, So head on over there and check out those shirts. You can also support the podcast by heading over to patreon.com. And a huge thank you to everyone that does do that. It means a lot to uh, this podcast. And check out some of the stuff I put up on there video editions of the show, uh, footnotes, things like that. Uh, and, uh, uh, that is that. Oh, wait, no, one more thing. Speaking of support, huge thank you to my friends at the vans and the house of vans in particular, who have supported this podcast for a while. Now they came over a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just don't do it out of your own pocket. And we will, uh, help you cover the cost of doing this thing. And which has been fantastic. The other thing that's amazing is that they have now re announced the reopening of the House of Vans in Chicago, which is a incredible building. I was just there a couple of weeks ago where they have shows and I think, you know, all sorts of events there. It's a great space, skate park as well and, and things like that. So very excited that's reopening. Oh, oh I feel like things are uh, kind of coming back. Speaking of coming back, the band I play in Fucked Up is going to be going on tour Coming in January, we're going to be celebrating the 10th anniversary of our album, David Comes to Life. And you can pick that up uh, on Matador Records, who will be reissuing it. We'll also be putting out Epics in Minutes, which is our singles compilation on the great Get Better Records. And finally, our friend Scotty Karate at Tank Crimes Records will be putting out The Year of the Horse, our hour and a half long song on vinyl and it will be coming out very shortly. So head over to those labels and order them or check out fuckedup.cc 
for show dates and, and all sorts of stuff around the band fucked up. All right. Ooh, on to today's show. And this is a good one, everyone. Uh, I've known Elgin for a while. I first met him back when he was playing in Righteous Jams. Fucked up, did a lot of shows with Righteous Jams. Uh, not a lot, but we did a few shows with him, with them and we hung out and always had great conversations. We'd always sit there and talk about music or, or, you know, whatever, and just talk for, for literally hours as you will hear in this episode and to watch him kind of go from this guy where he admits, he admittedly talks about this in the episode who was, um, you know, I think we, we I think I'm, it's fair to say, I think he even says in the episode was addicted to violence and, and caught up in, uh, some very heavy stuff and then transitioning to this Hollywood world where he is now writing a hit TV show is very respected as a writer by some of the biggest names in, in, in Hollywood. You'll hear this. This is the, is an incredible journey. Uh, I got to warn you that I left in some language that uh, is pretty heavy, but, you know, it's it's what was hurled with hate at Elgin because of who he is. So it's part of his experience. I, I left it in there, but uh, I want, you know, to warn people that in advance that there is some uh, pretty heinous language that is used um, in this episode. But in context, you'll hear it when it's, it's used. And there's also some pretty heavy talk about violence and, you know, things that he went through uh, over the years as well. So it is a, it is a heavy episode as well. There's, there's some, certainly some levity and, and things like that, but there's, we are talking about some pretty real shit in this one. Uh, and that is it. I don't really have anything else to add. Check out the Mayans on FX third season, you know, uh, a, 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 a great show and amazing to know it comes from the place it comes from. And yeah, anyway, I'm not going to ramble on cause this is a long one. Uh, I'm, I think I might even have a hard time exporting it. I'm saying this obviously before I export this file, but <laughs> I think this one's going to come in at the time mark that, uh, challenges this computer with the output. But anyway, that's for me to worry about. You sit back, relax, and enjoy Elgin James on Turned Out of Punk. Elgin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Bro, I can't believe we're finally doing this. This is crazy. Been talking about it forever. I know. This is a, a huge thrill because even before we started talking about it, just kind of watching your oh, there's no other way to put it, your ascent in in the world of, you know, uh, film and TV, uh, you know, I've always been like, as I was starting the show, I'm like, fuck, I would love to have him on the show so we could talk about like, you know, the journey from wrecking crew to this. So yeah. to have you here now <laughs> and be able to do this. Oh, uh, well, at the same time, bro, you have been killing it. It's been amazing to watch you just take over the world. You and fucked up. It's phenomenal, man. I get so proud. And fucking anytime, anything always happens. I'm like, yo, that's my boy. That's my boy. So it's been wild to watch you guys achieve what you have. Well, getting to have a song on the show when when you reached out and stuff, and then simultaneously you reached out, Mike from the band Fucked Up uh, hit me up at the same time and was like, yo, this request just came through. 
is mm. that is that elgin from righteous jams's show and i'm like yeah he's like oh we we gotta approve it and normally with mike there's always like he and i don't always see eye to eye on shit so but yeah getting to play with you early on and doing those shows with you it's it's awesome to watch the ride but i gotta start this off the way they all start off which is elgin how did you get into punk do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre I apologize because this may take up the whole entire time that we have <laughs> slotted. But I was like a little kid. I was in like fifth or sixth grade. And my mom was talking to our neighbor, right? Mrs. Digamus was her name. And her house would later burn down. And I'm, I was not responsible for that, I promise. But, uh, but they were talking about punk rock. And they're talking about like how they would puke on the audience and how they cut themselves and how disgusting that was. And I was like, you know, you're nine, 10 years old, ever I was. I'm like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> like, what is this punk rock? And it came because my foster brother, the time Gladwin had started a band right? pretty similar after this or soon after this uh, called The Change. And he would all of a sudden, so he got into punk rock, this West Indian dude, and all his friends would come over. This one dude that I was just like, thought was a cool dude in the world, named Glenn Riley, Yellow Bug. And they'd come over and they'd be in this band, they'd start this band, but they would always, he would, Gladwin always listen to stuff on his headphones. So I had no idea what punk was. I knew he was into it. I had no idea. It wasn't the internet. Anything couldn't find out what the hell punk was at this time. And so I was like obsessed with it. I was obsessed with it, trying to figure out. And glad, I mean, I was like, you know, I was 10, like over 10 years younger. They had wanted nothing to do with me. So I used to always watch Don Kirshner's rock concert. I don't know if you remember the show that existed, right? And it, it, was, it comes up from time. Yeah, it comes up from time to time. It seems like it was like such a great jumping on point for people. Does it really? It really was because you could find, you could see live music. And this is before MTV. So it was right there in your living room. And there's another show like Midnight Special or something that was on after it or around the same time. And I would watch this. And I always it had Kiss. They had, a, um, I remember the Billy Squire. You know, this is all you could find at the time. Remember Billy yeah. Squire? Yeah, you know, absolutely. He was in a band with the dude from Dead Kennedys. Really? Yeah, he was in a band. I think it was with Klaus Flora. I think it was one of them with the dude for, yeah, when in Boston. Is that so weird? But I want to do us. So weird. Wow, look before, it up. It's where it's true. Before the dead, yeah, Kennedys? before the dead Kennedys. Yeah. Oh, because he was like a player, right? So it must have yeah. been like, like, was it like a rock band? It was like a rock. It was like a side rock band thing they did in Boston. This is like some weird thing that I learned over the years. That every time Billy Squire comes up, I'm always just like, yeah, this dude was in a band. <laughs> I can remember, I think we made a class for. I don't think it was East Bay Ray. But that's awesome. Are you looking up right now? I can see your eyes moving around. Yeah, I'm trying to look it up right now to see if I can find it, but I, I can't find it. I'll look it up later. Yeah. I, I you, you you perked my interest about that. Yeah, I swear it's true. All right, I'm completely wrong. Um, either one could be true. <laughs> so I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with trying to figure out what punk rock is. Yeah. Right? And um, so it was one night, and it's all I mean, this is like a memory of a memory of a memory now at this point, right? Because we're several decades later, but this dude came on and he was wearing like a black leather jacket or something. And he was just screaming like the vocal cords, you know, the, the cords in his neck were just screaming, just screaming. He was jumping. At one point he gets up on a piano. He starts jumping up and down. I was like, Holy fuck. I, this, this is it. This is punk rock. This is punk rock. So I write down the name. I'm all excited. I steal. This is, this is a few years after 1976, but they made these like uh, $2 bills at the 19th for the whatever in America for the memorial several years later, but I stole them. My sisters had a bunch, so I stole their money. And then I went to uh, this pharmacy kind of drugstore called Leaders and I bought this record. Bring it home, so fucking fired up. 
listen to it over and over again. It's all about like the streets. It's about the death of the American dream, like all this shit. And so Glenn Riley, when he's come, I probably listened to it like, you know, 90 times in the first, just front to back, front to back, front to back, totally changed my world, changed my life. Glenn Riley comes over in his little yellow bug for band practice. Right. I'm all nervous. I'm just waiting, you know, a little turntable and like the shitty little speakers and stuff. It's like, as soon as the dude comes in, the other going to think I'm so cool. I'm just going to fucking blare this. <laughs> so he coats out. Front door opens, you know, Gladwin's like, yo, man, come on. He starts up the stairs. I just fucking drop that needle. And it's like, and it's fucking Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. (laughs) And that was my foray into punk rock. So still to me, punk has always been fucked up because Born to Run is a brilliant fucking record. Yeah, absolutely. It's all those things. And uh, so that's how I discovered punk rock. (laughs) And eventually... I would run away all the time to his kid Devin's house because his mom had like four kids and she was like 20. She was like super young. And so she knew how, you know, things weren't safe in my house. So she let me stay there. And he had this cousin who I swear had a fake English accent. Even though he said he's from England, but I know he's totally faking it. And he gave me a copy of Nevermind the Bollocks. And like, that was it. And then I caught up with what they're doing. And cause that record is still one of the greatest records of all fucking time. I don't care what anybody says. And, um, the uh, and then right after that, dude, it was divine fate. I don't know what it was because we were in rural Connecticut at the time where I lived on this farm, and always you know, it was always the radio, it was always the radio trying to record like everyone at that time trying to record stuff off the radio. And I got, and I don't know if it was, it's from a New York station, a college station, I don't know if it was actually maximum rock and roll radio or if they just spoke about it in there. I don't know what it was. Well, they syndicated all these bands, was it then? Then that must have been it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to me to cut you off there, but I think they syndicated it a little bit. That must have been it then, because I was always yeah, to this day. I've always been, but yeah, I found this thing called Maximum Rock and Roll album called Not So Quiet in the Western Front. They played a bunch of songs off it. Yeah, and all of a sudden, I became ten times fucking cooler than Gladwin or Glenn Riley, my fucking <laughs> these fucking posers. Because I would watch and they'd come to my elementary school and they'd skate all the time, right? And they'd be down there and they'd just be like, you know, again, probably listening to, you know, the Ramones and the Sex Pistols. And then quickly I was listening to like fucking Code of Honor and et cetera. <laughs> um, and, uh, and that was it. And that's how I discovered punk rock. And I, my, I had another sister who went to NYU. And so she gave me records in New York. And she came home once with uh, two of her roommates, one of which was this new wave a uh, girl, kind of new wave, this girl who ended up being Molly Shannon. What? Yeah. How weird is that? I yeah. had no idea she was into that stuff at all. Yeah. Yeah. So she was new wave, but her other roommate was this woman, Veronica, who's like a ripped up tights, purple hair, was just like a straight punk rock kid in, you know, 81 or whenever this was, or 82. And, uh, and she told my sister all the records to buy. So my sister would go to Crazy Eddie's when she was in New York and it came home with like black. So I got black flag damage. Just I got all these, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And she changed my life. That's or awesome. ruined my life. By the way, you want to see. <laughs> but well, dude, Bruce Springs, this is this good here. Born to Run, brilliant fucking record. Never mind the Bullocks, brilliant fucking record. Well, I think going back to Bruce Springsteen first, he does have a lot of punk connections. Like obviously the stuff with Patti Smith and, and the Ramones, mm-hmm. you know, like. It is kind of, I could see how at that time it, it could be confused as the other thing. Right. Especially when you're like a fifth grader and you're an idiot. <laughs> and then imagine how confused I was when I got plastic surgery disasters and they were talking shit on fucking on terminal preppy on Springsteen. I was like so <laughs> conflicted. But you're, and you're also, I a hundred percent agree with you on Nevermind the Bullocks. One of the greatest albums of all time. Yeah. 
go. And also, we uh, closed the door. We have a six-month-old baby. So, oh, congratulations! Holy, thanks, bro. Yeah, Jesus, everything. It's crazy, right? It's crazy. Everything, and it and and it keeps getting different and changes. I find every three, it's like in intervals of three. It's like some new milestone or some new, really, like three months. I found three weeks, three months. Three, three years you know like just every three like there's obviously milestones the whole way through but like yeah right. I've, got a, I've got 12 nine and six now so it's, that's so crazy it's also so crazy that i haven't seen you in that long because you didn't have any kids the last time i saw like we stayed with you in toronto yeah yeah like, no, that's Lord, crazy Laura and i are still together um that was that's that's, awesome that's who i married and and uh oh, yeah. yeah it's definitely been it's, it's wild how now you'll see the passage of time once you have kids is just so uh, quick bro i can't even it's been six months and i can see it and i remember lauren quite well because i remember being at your guys's house and um kelly clarkson since you've been gone came on yeah. and and everything stopped and i was just like remember looking at dfj i was just oh this is kind of silly and then about like halfway through i'm like this song fucking rules <laughs> it, it does it <laughs> i does. love that song now it's a great fucking song bro it's a tune and it's funny because like uh we watch well i don't watch it at all but my but lord watches the voice and i i watch it beside mm-hmm. her and i still root for kelly clarkson because of that song I will always be yeah. Clarkson. Well, um, bro, every time I'm in a grocery store, just so you know, and that comes on, I still just brings me right <laughs> back to uh to you, Lauren, in Toronto. Our dog Tilly, I don't think ever forgot you too. She was enamored <laughs> with you. I remember that. Day. Uh she was the best, man. Dogs are the best. Uh, but uh you also back to the yeah. sex pistols, as you're saying, yeah. that record is it hits so hard. And like, you know, it's come up uh, before on the show, but I find there's like that record is just like, I don't know, like it's a time and a place type thing. Yeah. Like that couldn't have happened at any other point in music. Like that is such a, a watershed moment for, even though punk was kind of happening before it, obviously, but like, yep, that's, that's a, that's a, such a, a signpost in things to come. I agree 100%. And I think, cause I know people, you know, it's always, I know you guys have talked about it on the podcast before about like either the clash or the sex pistols, and to me, it's always been the Sex Pistols. Like, I like that first record, but everything after that, I was just so, I'm like, what is this? Like, so <laughs> bummed out on. I mean, honestly, I remember even that first record, and this is, because right after that, I got to think of when I was getting into punk, all of a sudden, the same shitty kids I hated who were singing Thriller were suddenly singing Rock the Casbah. Yeah. You know what I mean? When you're going to like sixth grade, seventh grade parties, whatever it is. So I'm just like, I felt so betrayed <laughs> at that point. I'm like, this, this one thing that I had, for me and my small little group of friends, which is like two other kids, all of a sudden, like all like, you know, I don't even want to say the cool, whatever they were, all those kids, all of a sudden it was there. So I probably should go back. I'm probably decades long overdue to go back and look at the clash, but in my silly, and I apologize for this, um, miss my 11 year old misogynist self. Um, even though I was raised by a house full of amazing, strong women, but I was always like, yeah, Clash kind of sounds like punk rock for girls. Like, I bet my sisters would like this. Like, it's totally different, which is the dumbest thing ever. But that's a, um, yeah, I was always never mind the bollocks. Yeah, I've, I've definitely. Literally, I know that, you know, obviously, um, all the bands that I would go on from them on, from Tribate to Frightwig to Torso to et cetera, would always be like <laughs> the no, best, my most fucking beloved favorite bands. Well, Frightwig is a band that I only recently kind of discovered. I flipped by their records so many times, and it was mm. only after 
kind of through the I guess the Lunar Chicks book and the the way they talked about how important that band was for them that I went back and and checked them out and my God that band's so sick and 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 completely oh, forgot so good completely yeah I know which is crazy mm-hmm. which is crazy yeah they're one of my favorites man they have always been one of my favorites yeah fantastic. Um, that's the one thing about being like yeah old as dirt is like having been there and bought those records like when they came out and just being so like oh yeah fantastic and just doing stuff that like no one else was doing that's the other thing man it was like beyond I think the way the shorthand was like, it was like a female flipper. It was like so much more than that, man. It was just like, yeah, it was, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 and that, I think that's the great thing about, you know, obviously there's lots of drawbacks to the, the present state of the way people consume media. But the amazing thing about it is the fact that there is so much stuff that you can discover now that let like, you know, for whatever reason you might've missed, yeah. it's just, it's like they're a band that I've now dived in and, and <laughs> like they need, they need a proper reissue kind of thing. happening. Yeah. It's true. I mean, I think that's true. That's what's wild. It gets also lost about punk is how much of a huge culture it was. There's so many bands. I mean, nothing like now, of course, but even then they're like, cause I was never into the misfits, hmm. you know, they're just like, they're like almost, yeah, they just, there's so many bands that you miss out on that I actually didn't discover till later. Till I was like in my twenties that were happening then. You know what I mean? I know a lot of people felt the same way about the dead Kennedys or something like, Oh, they're just like a big band. It's just like the logo. So it is, there's just so much or, you know, I was always into like Wick reference earlier, like Code of Honor, Christ on Parade. Like those are all like my favorite bands. And most of my friends, you know, had no idea who those bands were and no yeah. interest in those bands, you know? Yeah. So I, I find it also like you're saying earlier with the clash, there's how there's a resentment when you've when once you've discovered something, there's always this kind of resentment for the the next wave of on ramp bands or the other on ramp bands. It seems like. It, and it, even though it's almost like a necessity, but it, I was thinking about that in relationship to Nirvana and how mm-hmm. I find people that were already involved in things don't necessarily have the same admiration and reverence for Nirvana because they were already involved in it. They didn't need Nirvana. And same with The Clash. You know, I think a lot of people, you know, The Clash was an on-ramp for them. And But like if you had already discovered it, you didn't necessarily need that on-ramp. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also, like, should I stay or should I go? Which is a fucking brilliant song. Yeah, you already have. You know yeah. I mean, I already you got have, code like, of honor. One and two. Yeah, exactly. You got code of honor, bro. What price will you pay? I don't need that shit. <laughs> so, where did you kind of go in terms of like what? Like, what was the first concert you went to or first live music experience you had? First live music experience was um, uh, was Rainbow. Richie Blackmore's Rainbow and uh, uh, the Scorpions. And I was so bummed because the Scorpions <laughs> blew Rainbow away. And I was it was like blew them away. And it was at the same time, I, I don't know what I like. It was at the same time I was discovering punk and discovering all this stuff. But I didn't know where shows were. I didn't know any of these things. And then there's another great radio show. I don't think it's come up on here called Adventure Juke, Jukebox. I don't think uh, so. WXCI. It was a singer. I think he was, I think he was a singer, someone from the, uh, No Milk on Tuesday. Okay. And uh great band. And uh um, and so they just had everything, man. I discovered everything. That's where I discovered Husker Du. Like it was where my life changed. It's just like everything. And uh, um, articles of faith, like all of this stuff. Every week is like what we all did. You just taped it. And I don't know where, I mean, all those tapes would probably there'd be nothing left on the uh on the on the film anymore on the tape of it, but <laughs> Every week, I just had so many tapes and tapes of it. And then they talked about the anthrax. And so I couldn't, you know, I'm like, I don't know, 11, 12 years old and trying to find people and to drive to this place. And the anthrax at, the, at that time was in an art gallery, the basement of an art gallery mm-hmm. in Stamford, Connecticut. 
in a super sketchy area. And so we went, finally, I convinced this girl who's a girlfriend of this older dude who's in the, you know, punk, but, you know, back to like my foster brother and his bandmates kind of punk. And, um, and over me and my best friend, Scott, and, and I mean, even to put it into context, dude, it was like, we lived in this little rural ass town, like a farm town. I was only, except for like my siblings who were being, they're so much older than me. They're from another planet. I was like the only brown skin kid around mm. and so group getting called nigger every day getting called spick every day and actually and my best friend was this native american kid named scott and so they would call us spick and span which the worst thing about it is that in hindsight i'm like oh that's kind of clever it's really shitty kind of fucking clever fuck you um you know so you go to you know when you're in grammar schools because you know this town was so small it'd be like the kids from high school etc and so we were just ripe to find this thing, to find punk rock. And so I brought him to this first show and show up. I had no idea. Still trying to figure out what punk rock was all about um, and pull up. And I'm like, you come in. I'm trying to give the guy the money. And he's just like, go in, go in, go in, just go in. I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, man. What a poser. I'm such a poser. It's punk rock. We don't pay. <laughs> and uh, and then I go. And then later he grabs me. He's like, yo, yo, the cops were there. Just give me your money now. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm such a poser. Um, <laughs> but it was uh, it was I think it was mental abuse. But I had no idea who the bands were at this. What? Time, right. Yeah. I think it was mental abuse. I figured it out later because it was like skinhead dudes on stage. My first time ever seeing skinhead dudes. Only they're dancing. And the girl who brought us who's literally a girl she was 16 um and never went to another show because it was so crazy <laughs> and then i was just like i am home like this is terrifying and uh yeah and then after that it was just all the time is anytime i get a show and a lot of that again like my other sister you know my sister whose roommate would tell her what albums would get me um and then it was the same way i had my sister Linne who had friends who were like older and queer and this one woman, Gretchen, who was so badass. And my be like, how do I get to a show? And Gretchen would just, she was like 19 or something, would drive me to all these shows. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and just, yeah, and save my life. My mom, man, you know, my mom would sit there. When I first time I saw Black Flag, which was life-changing. I mean, like a lot of things like change your life. That was the moment. And I found video of it actually is when they play at UConn. And um and I can see myself there and I you can just barely see my mom would let me do like a real mohawk. So I had like this half Afro, half mohawk thing, like the worst <laughs> ever. And, uh, and just to watch myself decades later, like literally seeing this like sea change happening, you know, while my poor mom was reading an Agatha Christie novel in her, uh, in her car outside, while basically a riot was happening. <laughs> That's awesome. Who were, I guess who were the local bands around that time too? Because it's like you mentioned, it's the first Anthrax space, right? So there's like yep. Seizure and and that Seizure, kind of yeah, Seizure are my favorite bands ever. I love They're Seizure. Awesome. Oh my god, so good, awesome. dude. Oh my god, so good. And uh, um, and then that album when Carl the singer was saying for uh, you know, Crows and Conformity, still so good. Mm. Um, but uh, um. And normally I'm like, oh, once people get big, normally I'm the first guy. I think maybe just because, you know, Carl was like a hero of mine when I was a kid, but I still love that record, uh, <laughs> Blind. But uh, um, yeah, No Milk on Tuesday, Vatican Commandos, like kind of was all this sort of generation before me. Lost Generation. I don't know if you ever listened to Lost Generation with Joey Diaz from Bridgeport, but they are fucking phenomenal. Yeah, because there there's that Incas records, right? 
Yes, exactly. Bro, yeah. there's nothing you don't know. It's so crazy. <laughs> oh, no, I'm just, it's I, it's weird because that was a scene that was like a real kind of like, uh, you know, area that I was, had a blank spot on. And yeah. it was only recently that I started looking into Inca's records and started connecting a lot of the dots and sort of looking at the stuff that happens. Like you mentioned, like this sort of like the generation before the Connecticut stuff that I, I was obsessed with. So right. It's only now that I'm really digging back and being like, oh, there's so much interesting kind of cool stuff happening the wave before. There is a band called Chronic Disorder that has totally kind of been lost to time. Mm -hmm. And one of their, I think their second record is so good. No one liked them in the scene. Um, hope I'm not talking out of line, <laughs> at least from what I can see going to shows. You know, yeah. they're not a they're not a popular band. Um <laughs> But I loved that record. And I started, you know, because like all of us, like I started a fanzine um, just to be able to have something to do. And because, you know, one, to be able to verbalize and all these other things um, or to find my voice, but also just to be able to talk to bands, just to be able to have a way. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, talking to that singer, Spit Respectable, for like four hours on the phone. And it was like this, like, you know, and then at the same time, the second time I saw Black Flag, being like, hey, Henry, uh, can I uh, interview for my zine? No, go away. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right, bro, just wait, just wait. <laughs> That's uh, Have you run into him since? You must have seen him since then. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Me and uh, uh, my brother Jocko, um, we toured around with him and our friend John during the Lifetime tour. Yeah, and that was, I mean, that was, we were teenagers. That was like, that was life-changing. That sent us two other ways. Me and Jocko had a band the time called rage of discipline and uh and oh did you guys put out records rage of discipline no oh, well, of course a righteous jams record righteous obviously. jams that's where it came from because i tell these oh, stories to shit. joey we're in the van and basically it was like you know me and jocko before because jocko would go on and become a navy seal mm. and uh before this we we're just like fucked up kids we had the our first band was called bronson's children because he's obsessed with Bronson, Charles Bronson. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're like, that's not, you know, let's do, we'll be rage of discipline. And then we were so, you know, we practiced for like five hours in the shed. And then, <laughs> and then if we, one time we only practiced for two and a half, because we were tired. We're like, we're weak bastards. We don't deserve to be called rage of discipline. We're now called struggle. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're just out of our minds. Like I still have journals from then. And it's like, it's ridiculous. And so when, uh, you know, Rollins band was playing, we, showed up at all the shows and we're like these crazy skinhead dudes like we we're out of our minds like we were just like not even we we're just bleeding testosterone on a whole other level you know yeah, and yeah, uh yeah. and andrew the bass player the barefooted hippie bass player like loved us <laughs> and i think with henry he didn't know what the fuck to make of us because he we were always just like destroying their shows getting kicked out you know i remember he, they played with agent orange and I thought Agent Orange just sold out at that time. So I was spitting on them, trying to fight Agent Orange, just like <laughs> out of our minds. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and so we'd always be like, so Henry would work out. He'd be doing push-ups. I'm doing like one of those like push-up uh, bar things. And me and Jocko would be like, you know, 20 feet away, like doing our own push-ups <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and just sort of circling them. And I later it'd just be like, yo, he's just freaked out by you guys. He's not I'm like, why does he want to hang? Why doesn't Hank want to hang? And uh, so Andrew was supposed to do a demo that didn't happen. But, um, and actually the last time I ever talked to Henry was, uh, it was at the Anthrax. He played the Anthrax. We'd spent like a whole, I don't know, it was like months kind of like following them around. And I mean, I'm sure this has happened to you now being on the other side, but I had no 
what to say to this dude, right? This dude literally, like when I first heard damaged, like I, for the first time felt like there's like two records, man. It was like that one. I'm like, Oh, all this noise in my head. Like, I'm not the only one. Like, this is the soundtrack of what's going on inside me, man. Like all this fucking horrible, just being twisted in all these directions and pain. And, you know, I didn't know the word depression. I didn't know the word of like all this other stuff. Um, even though, you know, the song depression. So I, I guess I should have known more, but I didn't know how to for myself. And uh, this dude literally changed my life. It's like that and Zen Arcade are really the big touchstones for me. Um, so I went up to him after this and after this sort of like summer of the falling around and doing push-ups in his presence. And I was like, you know, man, you know, just uh, where are you guys going to play next? Uh, oh, there. Yeah. That's sick, bro. You know, I had no <laughs> idea how to talk to someone and uh, on this and, uh, and he was just chill. And he just said, uh, uh, you know, cause as you know, you call me Nathan, you know, my middle name is just like, Hey, Nathan, he's like, stay out of prison. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> for at that point i was like i'm a teenager i'm like yeah that's the sickest thing he ever said and then you know i didn't by the way but uh um yeah it was wild i don't even know how we got there but that that was that was uh that was our relationship with hank and uh and then with jocko i mean like jocko obviously becoming like a navy seal going on and he was just like yo i went on real search and destroy missions and i think that this is a real i think thing for our generation at least for us and my friends, it obviously happened with Slapshot in Boston is like, we heard these things and we believed it and we, we, we lived it. And we, in some ways for a lot of negative ways, I mean, not in Jocko's circumstances, definitely in mine, brought it to the negative, um, you know, brought it to the extreme of what they were singing about. We went out and lived. And I think it comes down to, um, a lot of, at least for myself, and I think a lot of my friends, and there's a lot of kids, obviously, who come from very stable homes. Um, I didn't, and I didn't have, I didn't really know how to, I had a, like a bad dude for a dad, right? And I didn't know how to be a man. And I was raised by these brilliant, strong, out of their minds women. Um, but I thought how to be a man was just to destroy things and break things and hurt people. Because that's all that I knew. And so I think a lot of my friends kind of had that same way. We're like these little boys who no one taught how to be a man. So as you know, as a father now and, uh, you know, being further along the journey with me, like that's a real trip. Yeah, That's a real trip to look at my six month old man, little boy right now and be like, fuck, how do you do this? Yeah. Yeah. It really, uh, and you just, you know, obviously, you know, in some cases there, there are mistakes that are a lot easier not to make, but like you still right. just don't want to make the same mistakes that your parents made, you know, and, and you don't want your kid to be like you in the same way that they just want to be you. It's, I find that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fucking heavy, bro. That's heavy. It's yeah. I got to tell you the, the episode that you guys did when you redid the interview with your mom, which was one so brave of you and Tristan and so beautiful like that. I love so much. Like that was, that's that was phenomenal. So I just haven't you having to explain to your mom what a circle jerk is. I mean, that was pretty great too. <laughs> that was um, incredible. That definitely is, but, a memory I'm going to cherish forever. <laughs> <laughs> but that was beautiful, man. I mean, that's that that's that's when I when we um I will tie this back to music because this was what we're supposed to be talking about. But you know, you know, I haven't gotten to you know speak in a, you know many years now. Yeah. But I remember my mom passed away, and there was this night called Blackout Bar that uh you know damien from in my eyes and explosion and gibby from panic and uh, the trouble mm -hmm. and louderbach don't sleep on louderbach it's my favorite thing he's done um 
they had this awesome night called Blackout Bar. And, you know, my mom got really sick and I went away and I spent the last three weeks with her in the hospice. And I came back and no one knows what to say, right? Especially if you haven't lost someone, like, and people mean well. And there's this woman, Sharon, who's a bartender and she came out and, you know, we're from the same scene. So you know each other and you're friendly, but we weren't close. And she gave me this crazy long hug. And then she looked at me and she was like, welcome to the shittiest club ever. Because she had <laughs> lost both her parents. And oh, I was shit. like, I, th- I meant the actual blackout club. Yeah, no, not the actual blackout bar, which is also which is an awesomely <laughs> shitty club. But just that have lost yeah. your parents. So you don't yeah. know unless you haven't gone through. It really is like the most exclusive, shittiest fucking club ever. And uh, it doesn't matter your age, bro. I mean, I know people being in film now, you have friends that are in the, from their 70s to 17, strangely enough, or peers. Yep. And it never changes, man, is that the feeling of being orphaned. And so that's always what I always say to my friend. Uh, my friend John just recently lost his mom. And I was just like, we don't have to lunch you a day. I'm like, yo, bro, I'm passing it on. I'm like, welcome to the shittiest club. And at this point, he's lost both his parents. So now it's like, as I have, it's like the VIP level that you don't want to be on. But um, yeah, but anyway, I'll just say like that was an absolutely, that was so beautiful. That was so beautiful. And the fact that she got to see you take over the world, man, that she got to see you accomplish is just, it's rad. No, I, I, that means a lot. And I, I, and that's definitely, you know, I'm, I'm out of anything that's come out of this podcast. That's the one thing I'm glad that came out of it is that I forced myself to do that with my parents and have those kind of conversations with them. And just so I can give it to, to my kids and, and just, Mm. you know, like it, it, but like you're, you're saying like once you lose a parent it really does change the way you look at the world like i think that's the other piece of it that like i looked at you know kanye west when he lost his mom and i can completely empathize with the mental health stuff that came after that for him yeah because it it is it fucks you up in like a real way Um, it's really true no it's true and there's nothing and it never I mean, it never heals. That's the thing. I mean, my mom's been gone for you know almost two decades now, mm. and uh, yeah, I never. I mean, I obviously it never. When people still talk about it, like when someone would be like, you know, my friend the other day was, I mean, several days or you know, a few weeks ago was talking about, you know, you know, when your mom died, and it was like I was hearing it again for the first time. Every time someone says it, it's just like this little jolt still goes through, and um, but that bond, and I think the bond with especially hearing your mom and telling the stories that are so awesome and her support of you and like all of that. And like, you know, like I said, my mom bringing me to shows, my mom, you know, I was like, you know, I became vegetarian, like really young because we lived on a farm. And once I put it together, you know, my dad would like, oh, you have to eat meat. So I just wouldn't eat anything. And so she'd sneak me off to, you know, the local vegetarian store or whatever, which is like, wasn't like it is now. It's like just bins of grain, you know, it's really nothing like some nuts. some legumes um but uh but yeah just that love and i see it with my little boy when he looks into when he looks into his mom's eyes even at six months it's just like yeah there's something i mean you know us from having kids there's something that both healing and breaking at the same time yep yeah i think the one thing no one expressed to me and and uh you know maybe my mom did and i just ignored it or chose to ignore it but like you're never not going to be anxious again it's oh just, shit it's just i'm like, already so anxious bro <laughs> i know me too i was like before the kid came yeah i had an anxiety disorder i didn't know this was gonna be <laughs> but anyway we <laughs> uh this is uh but it, it's definitely like you know 
but it also gives you purpose, you know, and it, it yeah, changed right. me and, and changed the way I look at the world. And, you know, like in the same way you can't understand until it's happened to you, I think on in, in a positive way with kids, you know, like you can't yeah. understand until you have them, like what a demand is like people will cancel me on the podcast with me, like minutes before the show and just be like something with the kids. And I'm like, Oh, you don't have to say anything more. Just say something with the kids. Cause I completely understand. <laughs> yeah. I squeezed in tonight. I had a squeeze in on music time. We have a music time. Um, ever since I brought him home from the hospital and, uh, so I squeezed it in real quick before we got on tonight. Cause that's, and trying to teach him that, you know, and explaining to him, even like what modulating means, we're going right. He doesn't understand what I'm saying. He just likes, <laughs> I'm throwing him around. You know what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> but it but, will um, have an impact. It will one day, you know, when, when, you know, he's making, uh, you know, buckets of money as a music producer, you know, the modulation right. talk will come back. Yep. Totally. Or when he's, in a van and I'm like, still can't retire. Cause I'm still supporting him. Cause he's out. Yeah, totally. I'm like, what did yeah. I do? Either way, either way. It's a joy. Um, <laughs> I guess I get, before we start talking about Rollins, it's actually before we move on, I think Henry Rollins is it's so, I think it's underappreciated what a cultural impact he had on people. Like, obviously you're on the early yes. onset of this thing with lifetime, but like later right. on throughout the nineties, he was like, I guess like the only thing comparable, and I think he's a much more positive force ultimately. And I don't mean if you're friends with this guy, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but like then, no, no. but almost like a Joe Rogan type in like the way he kind of like became a figure that people like an aspirational figure. In yeah. A way. Yep. Right. Right. Uh, Joe uh, uh, Meganello talked about how important he was to him as a kid. And like, he wasn't even a fan of black flag. He was just like a Rollins fan. Oh, crazy. Yeah. He like modeled himself after Rollins and that's why he started working out and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, man. And yeah, bro, that's exactly it. And that's why, um, I mean, I think if it wasn't for Rollins, I mean, I think I know to speaking specifically just for, cause you know, it's just, we're bonded this way, but me and my brother Jocko completely different paths. If we hadn't run into that, hadn't run into black flag in general, when I saw black flag for that first time, we is me and my friend Scott again. Um, and we followed Kira around, right? We're like, we're following her around this whole place. And she's just there walking around. And uh, we're like, oh my God, there she is. And then, uh, you know, we're just these weird kids, this Native American kid and like this, everything that I am, like I said, with a shitty, weird fucking Afro Mohawk. <laughs> and, uh, and then she stopped and she was like, hey guys. And we're just like, quiet. And she goes, you guys excited for the show? I think Saccharin Trust was playing or something like that. They're about to go on. And we we're just quiet. And she tried to say something else. And we just stayed quiet. And then finally she shrugged. She's like, all right, have fun. And she walked away. And me and Scott were like, that was so sick. That was so <laughs> sick. We talked to Kira. Um, but the show, I mean, that when that dude comes on watching the, you know, uh, the video, uh, you know, again, decades later. When that dude comes out, I mean, they're jamming, you know, it's just sick. When that dude comes out in his shorts, mm -hmm. <laughs> everything changes, bro. Everything changes. And I know it became an easy target for people later. And the thing that people thought Rollins was, and, you know, I think just naturally there's such a negativity that comes obviously in punk. And I, you know, I understand that from both ends of it. Um, you know, being, you know, MDC, Millions of Dead Cops being my favorite band. And then years later, beating up that same band because <laughs> they played a song. Um, uh, 
but you know what I mean? But it was just like that dude, you're right. You can't, we can't, you can't overstate the impact that that had. And that dude that he willed into the world. You know what I mean? Like he literally willed it into the world. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. There's nothing like black flag. Yeah, no, they're definitely in there. You know, everyone who comes on the show from that time says it. they were the band, them and DOA that showed up and everything. Mm-hmm. 100%. And that's a great thing about being, again, I'm mean, starting to go to shows so young. It's like you get to all these bands. I'm like, oh, yeah, I saw them. Yeah, I saw them. Yeah, I saw them. I saw them. I saw all these things. I never saw the Ramones because they'd always play uh, over. They always played over 21 clubs. So I never saw the Ramones. And uh, and I didn't get to see the Dead Kennedys, but I saw everything else. I saw. I went to go see the uh, when I saw the Descent, and I brought. You know, my mom was cool. My mom could put up with a lot of stuff, but any way of me ever disrespecting women, besides saying that Clash was a girls' punk band, which I apologize to the world for again one more time. <laughs> I was eleven years old and an idiot. Um, but <laughs> I brought some girl to this show with me, and I, you know, and then they were playing. It was awesome it was the the send that play was awesome it was crazy i completely forgot all about her and she went to the car and my mom came in it's like your biggest nightmare my mom came <laughs> into the descendants show and got me and i was dancing i'd almost got into a fight with a skinhead like it was like the greatest day of my life i was like 14 or 15 years old and then everything's like needle scratch and my mom comes in and grabs <laughs> me violently by my arm and drags me out because i was being disrespectful to um to a young lady and she was totally right that you know you gave the descendants the ultimate segue into parents if they didn't take that right. off, yeah totally it's true and i don't know if they played that because i got dragged out who <laughs> yeah, knows exactly. hopefully they did <laughs> well your sacrifice hopefully was their gain at least in, in that case um I, <laughs> what were so like what were some of the other like sort of bands around this time because as you, you know it is kind of transitioning like who were some of the first of like your generation of kids that were bands that were starting to pop up or you like you notice that there's like a changeover because once again i think it's in the anthrax book they talk about how there's almost like a changing of a guard at a certain point 100 man and it was really you know because it, it was like i remember i remember even saying like uniform choice because everything happened these guys that were sort of like the, again the era before us i remember when uniform uniform choice played i'm sure it's come up on the show before um you know, screaming for change. We're all throwing like, you know, quarters at them and stuff. Um, but they're all like had long hair. It was like, everything was just changing in that way. I could see this. And, um, but then, I mean, it starts honestly, personally, and from my heart, it comes to, you know, Pete Morsey, who's will always be my brother and one of my best friends till I die happens since we're 13. And he started force reality. You know, and then there are these bands and there's a band called Power Surge and there's bands called Skeletal Ambitions that I would play after. And we just started and it's really precursor to even that would go on in Boston is we just kind of took things on this whole other level. I mean, I remember going for the I mean, we lived at the Anthrax, me and Jocko, John, all of our friends at that time, you know, Dave, all the kids from Power Surge. Um, we lived there. That was our life. And I would get banned on a, um, Sean and Brian would ban me for fighting on like a Saturday and then let me back in on Friday. I remember they had Gavin from Burn talk to me once, like sit me down <laughs> and I'm like, this fucking guy, uh, and Gavin's awesome. But I'm like, yeah, they had him sit down and try to talk, but it was just like, ah, yeah, man. No, it was like, we, it was our time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Seizure was gone. Maybe places are a while, but like, it was just, yeah, it was like, then that, that really became like our time. But I mean, we had, I mean, I didn't become, you know, I'm, I'm, tight with john joseph we didn't become friends until years later because 
Cro-Mags never fucking played. I mean, they played, they just never showed up at every yeah. show yeah. as opposed to, to Roger, who I've known forever. Cause AF would, and AF would play to like, you know, everyone would think they weren't going to show up. They did show up. They played to like 70 or probably, probably like 35 people or something. And then he's hanging out with, you know, me and Jocko and Pete and whatever. And like, it was just, I mean, you, I know you've talked about on the podcast before, but to have these people to change your life and then to have that access is just like, I mean, especially Rogers. Rogers is one of like the greatest people ever in our culture. That's Absolutely. just the truth of it. hundred percent. And, uh, and it's been so weird because he seems so old then. And then we played in Germany. It was Righteous Jams at Agnostic Front, like one of those festival things. And suddenly we'd almost caught up. It was the weirdest thing. So think when you're like 20 <laughs> and like 14 or whatever it is, 15 is like yeah. a really weird gap. But then I can't remember what he turned. And then I was just like, wait, hold on. How are we peers now? What happened? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was, yeah, it was, uh, um, I don't even know if I answered your question, but that's really when it started. Everyone started to kind of do their own bands. And I mean, by that time I'd been in like, 20 bands you know what i mean i got my first band was called dead end with me and scott again the uh, um you know i'm not sure if he was span or uh which one they're referring to of us the two of us um but you know we uh that was when we were like 12 or 13 and uh so we just played and played and played but i didn't play you know uh skeletal ambitions i think was the first time i got to play the anthrax chris Menacucci uh lent me some research materials over the information superhighway Cooch, exactly. And he told me to make sure to ask you about Skeleton Ambitions because he said the band was super sick. Oh, yeah, it was. Like, it was, it was, I mean, this is the time too, bro. Like, with Skeletal Ambitions, we had a chance to play with DRI mm. and we, but it was in Lawrence, Kansas. So <laughs> we drove all the way to Lawrence, Kansas. <laughs> uh, one of the dudes in our band, I don't want to call anybody out because, I mean, now, I think there was maybe possibly an actual mental health issue, but at the time you're just all kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he was became convinced that he was Jesus and he got into it with a dude or a friend of ours. Who's like a roadie. And, um, he's a friend, but he just came along with a ride. And then he stabbed him like what? So he to stab him, but then he stabbed him in his hand, which made him think, him think even more that he was Jesus. Cause now he had the fucking stigma. Like he was oh, literally fuck. losing his mind, but we were driving to, to Kansas we get to Kansas, drove all the way straight there. Uh, you know, we played like a house party, as you will. Lawrence, Kansas is one of the greatest places on earth. Like we had such a great time. Did you guys ever, was the outhouse still around? Do you guys play or was it long gone? We played, I'm trying to remember what the name of the venue we played in Lawrence, Kansas was. It was kind of, and we played there like so many times. I think even I have a poster for it upstairs, but I. I it, you'd like remember because the outhouse is in the middle of a cornfield. So no, I, I remember. And the outhouse is, I think, a legendary yeah then yeah no i think we played a, a place that was more in town definitely more right. in town i remember it's on like a main drag where there's a record store down the street oh right yeah lawrence all the lawrence kids are always been awesome man but we uh and yeah we went out there and played with dri and i think they had they were having this crazy like chemical issues within the band and so we played it was sick everybody went off i got my first dog sierra then, because there's this dude who's like the the uh, Sports Illustrated thing had come out about pit bulls, right? Okay. So me and Jocko and our friend Bruce were like, yo, we need a pit bull. They sound awesome. And they sound so sick because we're, again, idiots. And um, and there's a big black skinhead out there who had a pit bull that he wanted to get rid of. So I paid him $15 and she changed my life. Obviously, you know, once you actually, it's like having a kid. Once you have it, just you realize they're the biggest babies in the world and the greatest dogs. I've been rescuing pit bulls ever since. Mm -hmm. But 
I only bring this up about Skeletal Missions because we play our biggest show because there's like 300 kids there. 300 kids show up like every time there's a show at the Owl House. I'm running through the cornfield with my new dog. Um, our One of the members of our band is having a, a psychotic break. Um, <laughs> and then everyone surrounded DRI's van because they're in a tour bus, right? They're in yeah. like a tour bussy thing. And everyone's rocking it and everyone's smack because they the guys are rock stars like basically that whole thing we're talking about like turned on it when i think they actually just had real issues going on right yeah. and they couldn't but then the woman jill heath who was their manager had been rollins band's manager and a toronto so came, legend a, she, seriously i have her a uh, copy of the negative approach test press that rollins gave her back in the day but like she is she booked all the shows that i went to growing Whoa, up oh that's crazy i had no idea she is the coolest ever and so she so she knew me and joe i mean jocko wasn't with us but she knew she knew us from the lifetime thing so she asked for help and we got everyone to you know not kill dri dude jill heath is like oh my god she's so rad i didn't realize she was a toronto legend it's amazing i thought it was like howie mandel like who else do you guys have in canada (laughs) nova maybe you heard of drake (laughs) (laughs) no that's it's too funny because like yeah, I never in my life did I think she would come up in this conversation, but she is someone that I've I've dreamed about getting on the show because she took photos in the Youth of the Day record. Like she managed oh, yeah. Rollins band. She went on tour with Black Flag. And then she was still she booked the AFI riot show in Toronto and like all these oh, sort of dang. like pivotal moments in my life as yeah. up. So well that's yeah. just crazy about our cultures, these things, these touchstones that we have, and it yes. really becomes just a couple couple degrees separate or one degree separated. You know what I mean? Like that's like imagine if this woman had this impact on both of our lives. It's beautiful, man. I love it. Uh, it's amazing. Well, that's an. Ex- I was thinking, uh, you know, the other day when Travis Barker, uh, you know, announced his engagement to uh, Chloe Kardashian or Courtney Kardashian. Sorry, that I was mm-hmm. like, well, now I can connect the Kardashians to Gigi Allen in four moves. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> you know? That's crazy. Because <laughs> the- go on. Sorry. No, I was going to say that is that because the world is too weird, man. I feel like we've been alive too long. I mean, that's what happened over when all of a sudden all of these, I feel like everyone caught up to us in a way, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like, when the, even just like in the uh, sort of the mainstream that happened, you know, in the summer of 2020, when everyone has these signs, I read like a cab and all this shit. Yeah. And I'm like this straight ass normal fucking people. And all these people are suddenly learning about like, you know, trans rights and all these things. I'm like, yo, I got millions of dead cops in like 1982. I know this shit. You're just catching on that. This is something you should be concerned about. Yeah. About police brutality. Yeah. Like literally everything is in this record. Um, and now this is why we can't have nice things. Cause then they take it to, you know, it's just, it's yeah, no, but yeah, it's so weird of all these things. I, when I saw the Travis thing, you know, knowing Travis, it's just like, I don't know, bro. I can't top. I don't know why I'm talking right now. I can't top you putting together the Kardashians with Gigi Allen. We should just end here. I think. I don't know why I'm even trying to speak right now. Well, I, I like you know, it's it's it's. Uh, but I did. I I don't know. I guess it's one of those things where it just always feels like you're saying it's. It, we're always like ten years, twenty years ahead yep. of the conversation in punk and hardcore. We're like. Yeah, in the 90s, people were having these sorts of conversations, you know, where people are sitting around talking about this stuff. And, like, I just, I, I'm grateful that I got into this music because I got introduced to, like, you know, Bell Hooks and 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 uh, Howard Zinn from, like, just mm, yeah, yeah. From punk yep. reading list because that was just something you, you were supposed to do. That's right. 
I mean, that's, yeah, one heart. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's across the thing is like, even with this, you know, even with feminism, man, which is a weird thing for two dudes to be talking about as we shouldn't, but it's just like, even when people are just starting to get around, it's like, yo, this is, you don't understand. You're like in the fifth wave of, you know, of feminism right now. Like I learned all this stuff from, you know, you should listen to the poison girls. You know what I mean? You should listen to like, how do you like, it's all in my record collection right now. These are all things that I was discovering um, to be ashamed of calling clash a girl's band. You know, that's really, I mean, as opposed to girls are much more smarter and more emotionally intuitive than us. And that's probably why I'm an idiot, but no, it's like, too, it's all those things of growing up with, uh, you know, my favorite bands are always crass conflict, uh, you know, flux, like all that stuff. And that's really where I learned. I learned so much of what I, my viewpoints on the world, you know, that's where I heard it. And a lot of people, um, even, I mean, everything that I do, people talk about, I think now, cause the show that I have not to jump ahead, um, people try to pigeon you pigeon me as like a Latino filmmaker, which is just, you know, one small part of my DNA or like as an African-American filmmaker or whatever, it's like convenient for them. Cause they have something to sell. I'm always like, yo, fuck that shit. I'm a punk rock filmmaker. Like I was rejected by every culture. I was too dark for, you know, this culture for white culture. I was too light for black culture. I don't speak Spanish. I don't, et cetera, et cetera. It's like punk rock is where I went. And when I saw, you know, that first time walking in and seeing weird skinhead dance crazy and mental abuse, I was like, oh, I'm home. And that becomes your church, bro. It's like when people feel, you know, how they feel uplifted, they feel seen, they see all these things, you know, from maybe like a church service or from, you know, eating your grandma's food for whatever ethnicity you are. I mean, to us, it was like, that was a matinee that was seeing, you know, one time the Cro-Mags finally did show up, you know what I mean? Or seeing Agnostic Front or seeing all these things. Like, that's it. That's my culture. Fuck everything else. I'll be a, I'm a punk rock filmmaker until I die. Everything else is just, you know, what's convenient for the corporation at that moment. Well, it's funny because like, you know, as mainstream as all this stuff has gotten, right? Like on, uh, you know, I'm a big wrestling fan. We watch wrestling now. They've got like, you know, wrestlers wearing, you know, discharge influence jackets on TV. But like, mm -hmm. the, real the reality is it's still like, you know, it's kind of like, it's still like an inside thing where there's like, this core of people that are all interconnected by the fact that we were all part of this thing or found something in it for whatever reason we were drawn to it, like different reasons, right. but we all found something where, you know, it's, it's shorthand. Like I say, I say GG Allen, like immediately, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. Like right. I say, Henry Rollins immediately, you know what I'm talking about because these things are nuanced, but we've all spent so much time in these worlds that like, you know, like you say, you know, crass and conflict. It's, it's like, I know exactly what you mean because you know, it's, we're all part of this thing. Yeah, exactly. And we have, and there's a shorthand and that's what I find even the people that I work with, you know, I'd like, I was, I was lucky to, uh, you know, when I was a kid trying to figure everything out, I know we recovered this, but finally discovering, you know, the great rock and roll swindle. Mm. And on VHS, there's this place in Torrington, Connecticut, this small town that had this video store that had all these things and, uh, and bringing that home. And now, you know, I, now I knew about the sex pistols and stuff. And that literally, I mean, I still don't know what the fuck that movie's about. Like, I don't think you've seen it recently. Like, it's just like, it's a mess. when I was a kid, it's a mess. And I'm 12 years old. There's even more like, this is sure. Um, but it did something and it did change something. And then when I got to make a movie years later, uh, this woman walks in, you know, she was 19 at the time in like a leopard's coat smells like puke. Cause she had had a crazy night before. And it was Juno Temple, the director, Julian Temple's daughter. Oh, awesome. And as soon as we laid, yeah, we soon laid on each other. She's still like my best friend. Like, and it was just, as soon as we started talking, it's like one, 
she grew up with this stuff and she rebelled by being into other stuff because, you know, Joe Strummer is at her house all the time. Joe Strummer is her brother Leo's godfather. Like none of this stuff means anything to her. It's what she grew up with. Um, but she's so punk in her core. But to, to your point is we have this shorthand and that's why you don't have with somebody else. You know what I mean? It's hard to come with something else. You can have these conversations talking about, you know, Strand of Oaks, which if you haven't listened to Strand of Oaks, it's, uh, dude tim and his it's 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 phenomenal he's it just released his eighth record in heaven it's phenomenal i was out with him the other night talking and we're having these conversations and he can go through all punk rock all the way to cold world you know what i mean <laughs> all these things and uh it's just a shorthand and our my other friend who's an actor jr was there just trying to keep up but you become you're just finishing each other's sentences and it's just like uh it's it's beautiful yeah no it, there's something that's really uh amazing when you do find someone that is part of it like when you're like oh you know you know all these things we can we can definitely just live in this world for a second together exactly and again to bring out bring it back to you um i think there's probably a question i completely steamed rolled over but when i when we got to when the film i did little birds juno and i did i got the premiere at sundance and uh, her dad came so julian temple is there and i'm like this is one of those moments it's one of the moments as i'm sure you've had in the last you know couple of years that it's been of losing your mom i'm just like none of this means anything because my mom's not here but it's like sort of like that thing you know she was like it, it's just all that sort of bittersweetness that you have um but to have julian temple there and then i'm trying to explain to this dude uh this the impact he had on me and for him to sit there and watch the film and you know trying to talk about it with him later and again i'm just like all these years later i'm still just like a nerd trying to talk to this guy punishing him as you would say and, you know, first, and I'm so nervous. So I'm just like, oh, yeah, you know, what I mean, you know, and, you know, and the greatest rock and roll swindle totally changed my life. So I call it like the greatest instead of the great. <laughs> so already this dude's like fucking poser. And uh, but then I asked him about crass. I was like trying to connect it. I'm like, it's so interesting. Do you guys have any sort of connection to this thing? And that would happen. Like, I mean, was there anything? And he's just like, there are a bunch of fucking hippies. <laughs> I was like, all right, dude, right on respect yeah julian's like the most punk dude in the world he's awesome that's that's wild like it's it's funny too how you know punk is one of those things also that like unless you're like a traveler throughout the whole journey like you're describing like certain people are there's you 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 i will cling to your one era as being the true embodiment of it so hard and i like i'm much more interested in the people that can travel throughout it because watching it evolve is when it gets really exciting like you're saying like watching it go from the Sex Pistols to Crass to, you know, ultimately like Fugazi and yourself. Yeah. Like, it's just like all these different places this thing kind of goes. It's wild to see it blossom. It is. And you can't, you can't get stuck in it, man. You can't get stuck in it. It's me. I think we, I played this Spanish tour. I met my wife um, and it was in Boston. It was like a, basically like a ride girl band called Cherry Love Affair, bringing it back to uh, Gigi Allen. And, um, and this is the thing, as you know, and this is the time, this is like the Righteous Jams time. This is this whole era where everyone, mental, everyone, everyone in Boston is in like five bands. You know what I mean? And while yeah. DFJ was in about 26 bands. Yeah, um, yeah, she played in every single one of the bands that everyone else was in. But in these women, I mean, you know, they're in early 20s, but we, and I, you know, I play guitar and in the band, but they were good and talented, but they didn't feel like they had permission to play it was so fucked up and like oh no we got to practice more so there's no recordings nothing exists mm-hmm. nothing proves that we exist that we existed right and it was really great stuff way better than anything else that was going on at the time 
but it was still this thing where these dudes just could take up all this space. Right. And all my bands playing here, come see my band. And like these women that didn't feel that same, whatever it was. And it's fucking heartbreaking. But then now the bands, I mean, think about the bands like iron deficiency, weak ties, torso, upcheck, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? Like all these bands where it's just like, ah, it's fucking rad choked up. It's like all these things. So I love where everything's gone. Yeah. You know, I love of always being like one of the one of the only people of, of color in a show is like me and Jamil, my friend Jamil, and if you maybe a couple other people if we're lucky, your friend Chris. Um, to then now, you know, it's so I so I I agree. We can't get stuck, man. I love I love to see how it's how it's grown. Well, punk is also now finally like what it always said it was. You know, like it it is you know unity and diversity, and yeah. it feels like a lot more. You know, like you're saying, like it's it's not just like, you know, people singing about it now. Like it's, it's reflective in the audiences that are showing up at shows and the bands that are playing on stages. Like you're saying people are given space or not given space, taking space and taking space. Yeah, exactly. That's a beautiful way to put it. Even more important, just taking space and not asking for permission, which is so the punkest thing ever. In some ways it's punker now than it's ever been. Mm -hmm. And um, especially now it's just like, I mean, maybe it is the same because the worst part is I think it happened, it happened in the early nineties. It happened with this like metal thing is like the people I've, been, I've always, even the majority of my friends all got into, uh, you know, hardcore through metal, but this whole break from hardcore punk to hardcore, um, is just like a heartbreaking, you know what I mean? Like I, I hate metal. I've always hated metal. <laughs> I fucking hate Metallica. I hate that shit. I like, uh, you know, I like, you know, the napalm death, uh, you know, thing on a fucking on the peace comp or something you know what i mean that's as far as metal as i'll go um but you know that but this whole other influence that come from it from this other thing man it's just it's just different so i love i think someone some in some ways there's more punk at least if there was in the in the 90s you know what i mean at least this certain section in the 90s and may have just been an east coast thing but i'm even playing in wrecking crew and those dudes would be playing like Pantera or something over the fucking thing. And I'd be like, listen to like Drop Dead or Infest, like on my, so on my headphones, like, what the fuck, you guys? Well, yeah, it feels like in the, uh, in the nineties, it really did start moving away. Like you're saying from punk and it became a separate yeah. thing, like hardcore. And it, it was like, obviously there's that sort of like the heavy metal aspirational stuff, but even like, I think even the the sound of some of the stuff that was happening on the more DIY side moved so far away from punk where it was like, well, is this even part of the same thing? Anymore? Yeah. That's a beautiful way to put it, man. It's true. I mean, I remember with earth crisis, um, it was always obviously really tight with those dudes and, uh, Carl's such a, Carl's so awesome. He saw, he's so awesome. But, uh, the last time I saw Carl was on a righteous jams tour <laughs> and he, we went away cause everything was really, there's lots of people around. Mm. so you know he just wanted to get away so we went to like a coffee shop like far so two of us and then he just laid onto me some dark end of days stuff <laughs> that was so terrifying it fucked me up for weeks at first i'm like oh yeah bro all bro and somehow he got in my brain i'm like oh my god it's all ending it's like but um but i was like the one dude because i love those dudes as always friends with those guys where everyone that I knew loved their music, kind of hated their politics. And I'm like, yo, I love their politics. I hate the music. Like, I wish <laughs> it was just like, throw a fucking blast beat in there, bro, or something. <laughs> um, but yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, did you ever see Gigi Allen? Oh, yeah, man. Saw Gigi Allen. I beat up Bob Murder. 
um, <laughs> in New Hampshire. We beat up Gigi, Gigi Allen run. Like we played, we were skinny with skeletal ambitions. We played with them and we knew shit was going to go down. It was like, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this sucks. There's a time that happens in the, you know, eighties where all of a sudden I have one, when I, I have one picture of me with a Mohawk that somehow survived everything else is just gone. Cause it also became a skinhead. So that became like, no, it never happened. Never happened. <laughs> um, there's never punk rock. And, uh, and then now, I mean, that was a whole other thing. I mean, in the, in the eighties, man, you had like all of a sudden everyone became a skinhead. So you, the whole skins hate punks. Um, and then that sort of break. And then obviously the Nazi thing that happened, all the people that you've been best friends with for years, like brothers with all of a sudden this like big split happened. But anyway, yeah, we played with Gigi Allen. It turned into an awesome riot. It's turned into an awesome riot. So yeah, got to play with that dude a couple of times. Um, you ever I, listen to Lisa Suckdog? Lisa oh yeah. Carver from Roller Derby? Fucking Absolutely. Oh, I love so and, and And also the Suckdog, uh, her, she did a split with Smog. That's the first Smog record. Bill oh Cowan. shit. Yeah. Um, she's got like, uh, she, she also wrote an incredibly heavy book about being married to Boyd Rice. Oh God. Yeah. 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 Yeah, man. Holy shit. That's yeah. A heavy read. So yeah, no, she's, yeah. A, she's a legend. Like talk about someone yep. who, you know, was, is like involved in so much aspects of it, but yeah, I can remember reading in the roller derby book about her date with Gigi Allen. <laughs> I remember being a skinhead and going like being free ducks. I was such a huge fan and going to like. Going like being boots and braces, I bring my friends. We're gonna go to the show, and there's like, wait, what is this woman running around naked screaming at the top of her lungs? Why are we here, bro? Where's the oi? <laughs> um, Maskus has got this story about bringing, um, oh man, I'm blanking on his name now. The guy who's in something about Mary, um, not Max. Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh dude. Over the edge. Well, yeah, exactly. I don't Whoa. know why I went to something about Mary when there's so many more, obvious <laughs> movies with but, uh, uh, Jay Maskus has a story about bringing Matt Dillon to CBGB's and Lisa Carver being covered in shit. Oh shit. Going, I love you, Matt Dillon. And giving him a big <laughs> hug. Hello. That's so brilliant. We went to this show and she had, she just started like, it was like a book reading when she was, I think it was like, it wasn't the one that came out that I know you're talking about. Um, but I think it was maybe a collection of like roller derby article or no zines or something. Yeah, Feral House did, I think, the the roller derby book, I think, a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, the roller derby exactly. Well, and yeah. I remember going and uh and she just that was the first 20, I mean it was like 15 minutes was her just like making out with audience members, <laughs> like just bringing them up. And so for the rest of the things she just had naked like lipstick smeared like all over her face, like um now nah, she was rad. It, it's such an interesting period too in in i guess new york i guess but with that weird crossover with between performance art and kind of like mm -hmm. punk rock or alternative culture at that time too where like i remember i worked at a video store and we even had uh like a performance art tape that had a Gigi allen segment in it where he's like oh what <laughs> eating a fries yeah. that someone's shitting on and it's art <laughs> oh my god yeah it's crazy it is i mean in new york i mean and yeah i mean new york was I mean, what a weird, what a weird place for all those things to happen. Like it only could have happened in New York. You know what I mean? Of like that mixture of, you know, obviously like hardcore and stuff in the streets and punk, but also like the art scene, like all that stuff. It's just, yeah, it's crazy. Once yeah. in once in a lifetime thing for, you know, for better or worse, but once in a lifetime thing, those stories from those guys are just like next level. Yeah. It's amazing too. When you kind of think about how all this stuff kind of seemingly happens in New York, but yet it's not it's it's so it doesn't necessarily overlap in the same way if like you look at detroit you know and like mm -hmm. 
cold as life has run-ins with insane clown posse right but that right happen <laughs> new york in the same way because it's such a huge city yeah that's right yeah you're totally right you're totally right and there's just i mean i think there's just something about I mean, every, I mean, I guess in every way, every scene, I mean, this is, this is really obvious, but I think every scene just feels, I mean, how Boston always felt really blue collar, mm -hmm. you know, and so much in New York really does feel like from the streets, Detroit is this, is its own thing. Also Chicago is its own thing. Like it's really the flavor of the city. It's like Philadelphia. And I know you had uh, Nancy on, she's so rad. Um, we need to have, you should do a, he said, she said podcast with Nancy and I, um, <laughs> about all the things because we would when i was still on social media um you know we would talk sometimes or and uh because i mean i knew her now like later right yeah and yeah. they were so awesome she was so awesome and i would come and play like the most he's just, just a gentleman such a rad dude and uh um but then she told us like these stories of what happened when the meat men got beat up uh you know when we beat up the meat men when this thing that happened my first one of my first shows with wrecking crew with uh with biohazard and this big and it was like i think that was our first show back in years and uh but it wouldn't be two conflicting stories it'd just be her telling her story and be going like yeah that was fucked up <laughs> yeah you're right it totally went down that way and it was fucked up but here's kind of the story behind you know but um but that one but they, sorry to go off that point um besides that nancy's fucking a rad human being um is that philadelphia in that time you know what i mean that's a city that people sleep on a lot and those bands you know what i mean it's just like i know again well covered but that's philly also just feels like i don't know punk rock's cool <laughs> yeah well, i think i think you're right like and nancy brought it up there like the idea that the, there's a reason you don't hear about philly is because like a lot of these bands didn't necessarily have a ton of money to put at records yep. you know like like the scene you're talking about in connecticut that when the changeover happens it's kind of under documented because i can't imagine there was a lot of money to necessarily put out records back then yeah first. and the bands that had the money and this is a thing i think that really that's why i, I love violent children one of my favorite bands um you know, why I hated youth of today. And, and I, and I say that knowing that if I could sit down, you know, we'd have so much in common at this point, but back, I'm like, look at these kids. They look so like clean and white and fresh and like everything, even though I, you know, Raid been around a long time. It's just like, there's just something about that. Like these are the kids you hate, mm. you know, like this is what I have to deal with when I go back, when I go to school every day. And now you're going to be here with like your, yeah, it's like, so, but that stuff, I mean, that's, that's, that's over-documented. And that whole scene. Yeah. You know, and I was, I've always been straight as I'm still straight as to this day, just for very, very, you know, just very, very different, you know, very, very, you know, for different reasons in a different way. But, but yeah, I know you're right. I mean, there's so many great bands in Connecticut um, that got, that got slept on 100%. First off, start with Lost Generation, fucking great band. Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's amazing who writes the history in punk rock and like yep. what kind of becomes the official narrative after a certain That's right. Um, yeah, no, it's true. Exactly. 100%. And I guess Boston too, there's like kind of an under documentation of some of these bands that were kind of happening like towards the late eighties, right? Like wrecking crew starting there's like STP. There's that band. Was it blitz or uh, berserker? Or, oh yeah. Um, Big Tom berserker. They're fucking great. Yeah. There's a lot of it. Yeah. There's a lot of that stuff that did get lost. And I think it's almost like a lost era when you talk to people like in that, you know, early nineties or something. Cause there were these bands of people were that, it became a really local scene, which is really weird. And we never want to be part of like the local scene, but it became like, there's a band tree. There's a band. I can't believe I'm talking about those bands right now. <laughs> Sam black church. There's a band yeah. I'd never, ever would like, you know, and uh, that, yeah, that would be very, very much like a local band. And when we were in big block, you and wrecking crew were just like, yo, get the fuck out. Let's like, get out. Let's get out into the world, you know? And uh, um, 
Yeah, so it was, it was, I think there was a lot of Berserk was another band that were just, you know, oh, they're great. They had another band called Thug that just had a demo tape. I don't know if you ever heard Thug. No, so I've never good. heard Thug. Oh, that's awesome. You had these, yeah, and it was, uh, um, you know, it was Big Tom, uh, you know, it was an FSU with me and, uh, and then our friend, like, Little Joe. But they, I mean, this, these, this, because they were, they were influenced by these, by Jesus Lizard. You know what I mean? It was, like, really cool stuff happening. It was, like, really it was this time that kind of got lost where people were doing like really interesting things. Um, and it wasn't just before it became just sort of this sort of like dumbed down kind of, you know, just something else. But um, yeah, but you're right. A lot of that stuff gets, a lot of that stuff gets lost. Um, I mean, I think probably in all of our record collections, we have stuff that no one else was into. You know what I mean? And it just goes through, but it's, I don't buy I me. Mean, Boston's weird, man. Cause Boston is like, but yeah because you know we came in and we kind of inherited this thing we inherited the boston new york beef right and again i think to us is we were trying to like oh yeah all right cool like yeah this is and then uh but it was kind of a lie first of all it was embarrassing that these dudes went into new york and got beaten up because we never fucking did you know what i mean but then with these guys like oh you guys are all kind of a fucking lie all this is a lie. All this, these are song lyrics, man. And where did you hate us? Like, that was so weird to us. We were like, when your dog comes and brings you like a dead thing from outside and then you like yelling at your dog, like, wait, what are you talking about? All you do is talk about bringing dead things from outside. <laughs> um, and that's what it was, is we were like, oh, this is it. Oh, fuck. Yeah. We're, we'll get, we'll get back on the map. Just fucking watch us. And, uh, and then, yeah, it was really, it was weird for that sort of turn and like oh shit actually i have way more in common with these people from new york socioeconomically etc on from the color of your skin than maybe you from these sort of people that you'd held up on a uh you know on a pedestal earlier mm-hmm. and it, it feels like it also you know uh, well i guess first of all like you know i've always heard so many different versions of that infamous new york boston incident and i guess dc was involved too like the, the original one that starts the whole thing and mm-hmm. people come on the sto- show and there's been so many different accounts now and it feels like it's just something that's become like a, a, a it was such a it's such a like a pivotal moment in hardcore and it's been canonized in songs now and talking right about yeah, yeah yeah but like yeah. you're saying it's almost like just more myth than reality at this point because like i've heard so many different takes on what happened that night right yeah man uh yeah i yeah 100 uh I agree. I, that is all true. And who knows what actually happened and who knows, as we know from stuff, it's also probably wasn't anywhere near as big as either side says, you know what I mean? It was probably like, not at all. Like it's been canonized as, but they, you know, we got a lot of flack. I think with me, uh, you know, was, uh, my friend, Bruce, another New England dude, and we moved, went to move to Boston and we met kids from Brockton. We met kids from Southie and they'd already started FSU and it was just on another thing we were just like so i think they, they, we got a lot of shit of i think from at least from choke in particular thinking like we worship new york we we're trying to bring new york to boston that we ruined the boston scene it was literally like what are you talking about man like we're keeping this beef alive with people that actually are way fucking more awesome there's people that are still in my life you know manny madball was at my house yesterday to meet my son you know what i mean like these are people yeah. that are still in my fucking life um but uh and then you know and then they uh i don't know man it's just like not even to go down that path but just so much of shit is is this is why i don't like metal let me bring this back I'm back on track i don't like metal because it's fantasy 
right? I don't like metal. I don't like Slayer. I don't like all these things. Like I'd rather listen to like a country song or a singer songwriter because you're telling the story and punk rock is just people telling stories. And as opposed to telling these like fantasy stories. And I think sometimes with this and sometimes with these bands have these personas and everything else is a lot of that is just more fantasy. Right. And then as sometimes as kids were like, oh, this must be real. Oh, fucking battle in the streets. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Let's battle in the streets. I'm like, oh no, this is just, this is just a fantasy to you. But because stuff that we're coming from, I think for a lot of us of really kind of more desperate places, more households that were not safe. Like we had more need to, I mean, people talk about gangs, whatever else. And it's partly, it was just like, when you don't feel safe in your own house, you don't feel safe in the world that you're in. And then you feel safe for the first time with your brothers or with your friends. Like that's like, that's an intoxicating feeling. The first time I ever had another male tell me that he loved me my whole entire life was actually at the meat men riot. When my friend Bobby urban, who's now passed away, um, was going to prison and he had to go cause he had to go the next day to, you know, turn himself in. And, uh, if Bobby from Southie and he, uh, and he kissed me on my cheek and he's like, I love you brother. And it fucked me up. Hmm. Like, what is that? It like, like to this day, we're talking decades later that I just remember this dude. I never had a father tell me that I never had that. You know what I mean? It's just like that, that thing that fills this hole in you. And it also becomes intoxicating when you don't feel seen your whole life. Right. You feel disregarded. You feel like you've been told you're a piece of shit your whole life. So then you become like the fulfillment of that promise, you know, because yeah. that's all that's even told that you are. And for when all of a sudden you do, it becomes intoxicating when you have these three letters on you, right? And you have your brothers and you walk into a room and everyone goes cold. Everyone's skin turns cold and it's not right, but that's becomes intoxicating, right? That becomes intoxicating and becomes like its own drug in a way. And um, yeah. So anyway, so we were living that shit for real. <laughs> and then, cause we learned about it on the records and it really comes down to, I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you had it in Canada where uh, there's a PSA, a commercial, and they, they have like a kid gets caught with some pot. And like, where did you learn this? He's like, I learned it from you, dad. Yeah, yeah we, we learned it from your fucking fantasy. And then that's why you got knocked the fuck out. Well, you, well, you bring up a, a point there where Nicole Panter, when she was on the show, she managed like the mm -hmm. germs and stuff. Um, and, and, to, and actually a, a, a brilliant script writer too, in her own right, script doctor and stuff. Um, oh, and shit. She, she uh she um brought up this point that when you think about punk rock it's really people with trauma inflicting trauma because they're, mm. they don't necessarily have the tools to process it and you know obviously it's a lot yeah, more than bro. that but but there yep. is that aspect to it it's true i'm i mean i think i go back to sort of this first wave that i came on as a little kid um and I think all the kind of kids of my generation at that time, at least we were all kids who'd been institutionalized. We'd all kids that a lot of us had been in juvenile hall. We we're kids. We were fucked up. We were literally thrown away kids. We were like the rejected. If you want to bring it back to suburbia, like all that was very, very real. I think. And then they're also really smart college educator kids in college doing fanzines. There's like this weird mix of these yeah. things. Right. Um, I'd be sorry. No, I, I, no, I, no, no. You I think you brought and you're you're touching on it earlier, but I think it's one of the great contradictions of punk rock or one of the great dichotomies that exists within punk rock. The fact that it's it's art school meets street rock and roll. And it's yeah. so it's yeah, like bro. this art school fantasy and like you're saying, like, you know, affluence and and yep. and a lot of that 
And then the reality is there's also like it's street rock and roll too. It's from the Bowery. It's from Detroit. It's from like the streets. Yeah. And it's, it's this whole thing where it's mixed together. And like you're saying, like there's people that are, are at times talking fantasies and there are people that are living realities. That's 100% correct, dude. It's so true. And it's weird. And I think, I think it's probably always been a uh, fucked up, delicate balance. I mean, you hear all the errors in the eighties, right. When, when the first thing happened, obviously what happened out in LA, what happened in these different places um, when the violence came in or when, you know, uh, when the beach kids came in, I remember understood, you know, Nazi punks, I thought was about racist, like everybody did. Right. Yeah. And, and then hanging out when we came out to the West coast and we're hanging out with these dudes or like this first, cause they're, you know, generation before us um, of the, we were hanging out with the beach kids. I'm like, these dudes are awesome. These dudes are out of their minds. I'm like, wait, they were talking about you. You guys are I have way more in common with you than I probably do with Jello Biafra. I have all of his obviously records and, you know, had a huge influence on my life. But I remember when Jocko and I met Jello and he was just like the most squirreliest dude. Obviously we were young, weird skinheads. So I'm sure he was terrified, <laughs> you know, but they were hanging out with these beach dudes that had, you know, you know, came in and brought all this violence and only, you know, from the TSL guys on and like their, their cohort cohorts. And uh, sometimes it comes down to socioeconomics, man. I will say that. I think in the world that that just actually makes a big uh, influence out there aren't also fucked up, you know, middle-class kids as we found in punk rock again, I think in the eighties, but I think there's, I think that's, I think it's exactly what people have a lot of trauma. And the whole point is when you're in a band is to just like with my art you do is to put your trauma into that. You can either like destroy and I spent decades of my life fucking destroying. And it's like, oh shit, if I had just, if I could go back in time and just use this, cause I have the same fire. I still want to set the world on fire all the time. I still want to fuck shit up all the time, but now it becomes like, oh, because it, it's into this. Now I have this way to fucking put it all into and to put this fire into, to try to set the world on fire in a completely different way. But those were tools I didn't get until I was like a 30 something year old man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, and then they're not, you know, like you're saying, even like hearing, you know, saying, I love you to another male as being someone who's raised male, it's, it's stuff like these things aren't necessarily taught to us in the way they right. should be. And especially if you're coming from a situation where you don't have modeling to look up to, it's, it's, it's going to fuck up the way you look at the world. It's, it has to. It's, it's one, it's 100%. Let's talk about righteous jams, bro. Because yeah. I think this is a perfect segue to Joey Stiggs, exactly what you're saying right now. It is so blackout bar, like we talked about, and um, you know, we 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 ran blackout bar, I worked the door, all of us were there, and particularly about who could come in. And the girls in my band, or you know, they were girls, but like the women in my band and Cherry Love Affair, always like, oh, bring these guys in. They're all probably friends, you know, all people that you have their records, right? And just to me at this point, it's like everyone's just like a shiny white kid in Boston. You know what I mean? Like everyone's like, I don't right. They're all like like nice college kids, and uh, um, and like it. I mean, I like I love these people. You know, now you know, but that time I'm like I didn't really know any of them. I knew Cooch, of course, because Cooch is awesome. Yeah. Um. There's no one. There's there's only one Cooch in the whole entire universe. And yeah, there's all over the world, Cooch. and I've never met one. There's only one one Cooch. Absolutely. I love that dude. <laughs> um, excuse me, but um, and then one day they bring this kid with them. It looks like he's like 14. <laughs> And they're like, hey, you know, can so-and-so and so-and-so and and can Joey come in? I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever, cool. And, you know, we go, the nights were always wild. They're always like crazy violence, terrible things happening, just complete debauchery is like our version of uh, Studio 54 or something. Like the stories from there 
um, were just insane. And then at the end of the night, it's like 2.30 in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm talking to people, everyone's left, and there's this dude that's just sort of like hanging. And I'm like, the kid all that in earlier. And I'm like, oh, this is awkward. I'm like, all right. I'm like, yo, what's up, man? And he's so polite. And he's like, hey, I just really wanted to thank you. Looking me in the eyes, shake my hand. I really want to thank you for, you know, letting me in. Like, I had a really good time. Thank you. And I was like, whoa. I'm like, this kid fucking rules. Every time all these people from these kids come in, they traipse in, they probably have their own insecurity or whatever. They don't want to get punched in the face, whatever it is. Like, they just go in and out. They never say that. And this kid stopped and did that. And I was like, yo, bro, anytime you want. So then from then on out, Joey C, Joey Contrada from, you know, from no one at that time, they did Tad Righteous Jams, would come in, like everything would stop when that dude would come to the door and we'd let that dude in, right? Yeah. And we'd start hanging out with him. And then he's sitting there and he's like basically at a table full of, you know, gang members. Uh, I remember one time it was only about a girl, talking about a girl and how we should go with the girl. And I'm sure he's, you know, like the worst advice from all of his like dorky friends. And uh, I was like, yo, bro, you just got to break yourself open, man. Like. Pain is beautiful. Like, let her just fucking crush you, bro. Lay it out. Be alive. And uh, and I don't know. I think he probably, I don't know if that ended well with the girl, <laughs> but I do know it was her loss because as you know, about a year late, not even like six months later, Joey C was like the magic mic of the hardcore world. That dude made actually Channing Tatum look like uh, Chris Farley. Yeah, but no, that's, he, had, he had abs for days. For days, but that's, I mean, that's why Joey C is one of the most important people in my life to this day is there became this so different, completely different lives, completely different worlds, completely different socioeconomic place, whatever. Um, and there's just something about that dude that was real to then, he you know, he made maybe possibly the worst decision in his life to ask me to join the band. And uh, I was like, yeah, all right. But, you know, and uh, yeah, but, I mean, that's what, that, so I think there is something to what you're saying, but like how to be a man. Right. And then sort of that juggling and stuff. And it really became of my, some of my greatest memories of doing this have been, you know, all the years again, since I was 11 years old, I mean, my first band at 12 um, was being in a van with DFJ and Joey and just like, you know, Paul Cape Cod. I don't know if you remember Paul. Who's I remember in the band. Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, me and Paul and Eric Scandalous, uh, our yeah. roadie, and being on the road and hearing these two kids talk and being like, oh, my God, you guys are so much more fucked up than we are. <laughs> Holy shit, you guys are out of your minds. <laughs> I'm like, I feel so fucked up now. Um, but, you know, but Righteous James became something when, uh, you know, something, some, something pretty special, something yeah. special. Yeah, no, I, that, well, that's why people still talk about Righteous James, you know, because it was. It was like a band that I, I kind of like look at that band and be like, oh, what could have been, you know, because yeah, you guys had a lot of label issues, not obviously locking out, but right. Like, right. They, like you couldn't get the record out. I remember there being, we had, stuff. yeah, there's, there's like label issues. Cause when they had the demo, yeah, it was always stuff, but it was also, I mean, this is the truth of it, man, is we, and we were like the best band and the worst band ever. Cause it, I mean, there's video of me. I'd have to tune Paul's guitar a lot, <laughs> yeah, you know? I remember Colin of Arabia being so mad once. He's like, you guys are such a great band and you suck so hard. Why do you suck so hard? Um, you know, we went to go play uh, Europe. Cause I mean, I come from also the era of like, I haven't seen Black Flag. I mean, I got my first flight uh, the second time I saw Black Flag. And uh, I remember being on the stage with this dude and we had each other like in headlocks, like punching each other. And, uh, and Greg Ginn was above me playing his like uh, that clear Dan Armstrong guitar, yeah. and he was drooling, and he had like spit just like dangling. Also, one being punched, I'm more afraid of getting like Greg Ginn spit in my eye. Yeah. Um, but there, there, I mean, you hear the things. There was 
it was awful, but it was just real. And that's what Righteous Jams was. So then we went to Europe and everyone just like, oh my God, they missed like so many chords. You know, it became so we were like, what are you talking about? Yeah, maybe sometimes we sound awful, but it's just that fucking energy, man. There's just something about this triangle, especially when I would look at DFJ and he would just like count us in, like magic would happen. Sometimes that magic sounded awful, but when it was on, bro, it was like, it was special. And Joey C, one of the greatest front men of the last, you know, last couple of decades, I guess it's been a while now. But to your point, the second time we went to Europe uh, with Iron Age and uh, Joey and I had moved on, man. Like I... When we stayed with you in Toronto, I remember like I stayed in the van, like I slept in the van yeah. after rocking out to Since You've Been Gone, as we talked about, after yeah. rocking out to Kelly Clarkson um, and hanging with your awesome dog, um, because I was trying to write. I was trying to figure shit out. You know what I mean? I was like, I want to make fucking movies. And uh, and off Joey stayed with me or Pono, who went in there with me, but Joey kind of the same. Joey's just like, so we were in Europe. I'm like, yo, bro, I'm like, I want to make fucking movies. And Joey's like, yo, I want to be a model. I'm like, that's awesome. Let's do that. <laughs> Let's do like, we've, we've lived this adventure and, uh, um, and that's what it is. And we left tour halfway through we left tour. And, uh, and then I haven't, I stepped on stage once for actually uh, Leo temple, uh, Julian temple and Juno temple's brother and Julian temple's son um, for his birthday. We played the space land for shows we wrote 24 hours before, but besides that, in the, in the real sense, that was the last time I've ever been on stage playing with a band is with Joey and we'll never do it again. Really? Like people come up and they've asked us. I don't, I do. I miss it. Um, Can you hear me? I've dropped my thing. Yeah, no, I can hear you. Um, Yeah, I miss it. I miss it in weird ways. I miss it when I'm driving and then you stop at a rest area and, uh, and you know, when you're on tour and you stop at a rest area and there's like all the food you can eat and you're, it's just like that, that magic of like funny, like I miss it in weird ways. I miss music 100%. I, everything I know about filmmaking is just through music. We had a scene in my film, Little Birds, and the uh, these girls, or we'd like these jump cuts and these uh, girls just running through this wild, going wild and like running around in, in uh, on, you know, in sunset. And the first time they cut it together, it sounded awesome. It like looked awesome. It was like amazing. Like, that's it. It just struck this chord inside me. And then when we did the final cut, I'm like, why do I hate this scene now? Like, what did you change? Like, I hate it. It doesn't work anymore. And she's like, and the editor, Suzanne's like, well, I don't know. And, you know, and she's awesome. She's like, I don't know. I don't know. The only thing I changed was, you know, I smoothed over all the cuts sound wise. I'm like, oh, that's it. I'm like, I hate it now. It's too smooth. Mm-hmm. Like it has to be like, who's could do playing a fucking love song? Where's the distortion? Where's this? Where's, you know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. I know that's fucked up, but that's what's right. Um, so I, I, that's what I take to everything we do. Uh, you know, in the film world, but I know I, I, miss, I miss playing music a lot, but I think Joey and I, and I always respect Joey. People ask me, um, it'll come up a lot of us to play something. And I always extend the offer to Joe. Um, and he's always just like, yo man, why would we ever look back? Mm. Yeah, no, I definitely, I, I, and I totally respect that and, and understand why. And I think what you're saying, like, that's the punk thing. Like that was the thing about righteous jams. Like, yeah, it would be sloppy sometimes, but that's punk, you know, like that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. real. And like, I, and, and then when it would click like that time with the dropkick Murphy's in Toronto, where mm. 
it just felt like it was just like you're saying like when it goes it goes and that wasn't even your guys crowd but like just like no sure was not <laughs> everything was clicking that night it was such an awesome yeah. set you know and like um but i want to go back to the blackout bar for a second someone's got yeah, yeah. a documentary about that bro times were wild man and it was yeah it was uh it was it was <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a wild. It was like the wild west, man. Like it really was. But there's all these bands that come out of. Like I said, I mean, they talk about. That's one thing about Boston that's so great. And I was talking the other night about. Um, I feel like we've been on for a while, so I'm starting to say a boat. I feel like I'm got your Canadian <laughs> accent. Um, You're gonna start saying sorry every second word now. Sorry, sorry. Um, the uh, everybody that just walked through. I think it's like this in a lot of towns, but like everyone that just walked through these things and where you lived and like. It's like think of the even like band like the explosion. It was just like all like million dollar Matt roadied for you know our band Big Block. Mm -hmm. I was in a band with you know Dave Walsh. It was like Sammy obviously was in the trouble with give. It was just like it all. We all lived in Mission Hills. Just this all this crazy stuff happening. And then Damon, then in my eyes and like all the ten yard fight. You know we took them on their first tour with Big Block. And, um, you know, cause we've known fat boy, we've known LaCroix forever, known John forever. And then that's a cute guy to do it. Young was doing a fanzine young. Like, that's just like, I don't know. It's yeah, it's, it's, and then you come down to blackout bar where I think a lot of people had also broken their edge around this time. Yeah. So she got a, she, she got really, really dicey. Um, but, uh, yeah, and that was, uh, it was, but then also people doing really cool bands. I mean, it was band like the damn personals. Like there's a lot of cool stuff that was coming out of it at the same time. There's like a lot of art. And I, I mean, I've always felt bad for Dean. I mean, you know, Dean Bartolonis. Mm. Yeah, I was, he's, I was in, I was in Wreck, I was in all these bands with him from Wrecking Crew on, The Big Block to The World Is My Fuse to, you know, he's produced lots of bands from Madball on and all that. Produced like, No know. Warning, um, No yep. Blood. Yep. Yeah. Um, Dean's awesome. We've known each other. Our first band was when we were teenagers uh, called The Law. And we have these bands and then my sort of, other life would come destroy these bands. Like people hated Big Blood. I mean, it happened with Wrecking Crew, right? With Wrecking Crew, you know, we'd always just all these shit would happen. Obviously, with uh, with my friends, mm. I'd always choose my friends over it. And uh, and then same with Big Block. They started Big Block because they didn't know how to break up Wrecking Crew. So what they did is they just started a new band with everybody but me and Keith Bennett, the bass player, <laughs> and. Uh, um, for sly i hold no ill grudge um but then stupidly when they lost their singer um they let me back in the band and they always come crawling the back they always come crawling back and then the then big block got ruined um by my lovely my friends so obviously i'm not being put sarcastic i do love you know to this day or my brothers till i die um for um and uh because and people didn't know what to make of big block right people didn't know what to make a 44 big block and not to Cause I don't, I don't look back. So it's not like, Oh, what could have been? Um, but we were at a weird time where everyone thought we were a victory band. Right. And I hated victory bands. I didn't, not that I hated that sounds, but it just, that wasn't our thing. Right. You know? So, and then, so we have the, we have this fight at this one show and the, our drummer quit because we got blood all over his drum cases. Right. <laughs> so that dude from wrecking crew is like, this is not what I signed up for. Yeah. So that dude quit. We got Al from shelter um greatest dude ever um and so one of the most favorite people in the world you know from obviously american nightmare a piebald get high and uh and we kept going on but it was always everywhere we played it was always like the same stuff like always this violence would happen always felt so bad for dean and then the same thing would happen with like our next band and, and so on 
And then he played, he had this amazing band with Mark Ryan from Super Touch, um, Foreign Islands. Mm. And they played out in LA as this thing for, uh, for major labels, right? Sort of like a showcase. And I was living out in LA now and I had like some fellows from LA and some guys from Boston moved out with me. I'm like, yo, we're going to go support my friend's band, going to support Dean's band. No one do anything. All right. Like this is, I fucked up Dean's life since we were teenagers, <laughs> please everyone be cool. Right. Yeah. And so we go and they play and they're awesome. And they're so dangerous. Like I love that band um, with Mark singing. Oh, they're great, man. You never knew like seeing them in Williamsburg. You never knew what they're going to do. It was awesome. They play, they kill it. And even though it was like this weird Silver Lake hipsters, like disco dancing, like being all these weird moves. Like I'm like, everyone be cool. Don't do anything. <laughs> and, uh, and then we leave. I'm like, yo, let's get out of here. Like Dean's talking to the label people and talking to everyone. I'm like, yo guys, we're going to go we'll go to this cafe, Fred 62. Dean just meet us later, man. I'm like, oh, I go to Fred 62. I'm so relaxed. I'm so relieved that nothing happened. Uh, and then I get a call uh, on myself from Dean. I'm like, oh, maybe he's lost. And he's like, yo, I just knocked some motherfucker out. I'm fighting. I'm just like, <laughs> oh, no, yeah, I forgot. You're crazy, too. Yeah, I forgot. I remember playing that show with the law in New Haven in a basement. And as soon as I punch someone, you're hitting them with their guitar. That's right. It's, not, it's your fault as well. Um, I don't even know where. I Sorry, I derailed this so badly. But Well, it's funny because we get to the Silver Lake uh, hipster thing that you, you're talking about there. And it's it's funny because I think like a lot of the hipster stuff, that starts at the blackout bar. You know, 100%, like, dude. Yeah. Well, sorry to interrupt you. No, um, that's all. That is all Gibby. That is 100 yeah. yep. percent. Gibby is the star. And I try to explain this to people all the time, especially when they meet Gibby, you know, because Gibby's still one of my best friends. He was in my wedding. Like he's like, you know, brother forever. Um, actually, he, I went to New York and I hit him up and I was like, yo, bro, where are you? Like, we're here. And he's like, I moved to LA. Like I had a change. And I was like, all right, man, I'll be out there soon. And then I was out there, you know, probably like six to nine months later out here with him. And, uh, um, but it all starts there, dude. Makeout club. Yep. Like it all starts with Gibby, with Gibby Miller. It's really incredible. Everything that people think of this as this culture all starts with this one dude who, when I first met him, was this like awkward, you know, 14 year old, 15 year old, I really was like skinhead, like him and Sammy, like in Harvard Square. Um, yeah, you're so right, dude. It all like Blackout Bar and seeing the bands that would play there that then would go on to have these nights. I and mean, we had a night that was like a drag night, but then you also had members of a, um, of a motorcycle club that we were affiliated with there as well, like all mingling at once. It probably felt a little bit what New York at a certain time it felt like, mm. you know, and this is what we had in the early aughts in Boston. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I think it, like that meet me in the bathroom book, you know, like obviously those bands were, were key bands, but I think like in terms of the culture, like you're saying with Gibby, like there's no way the people that were doing Facebook and all this stuff weren't aware of makeup club. Cause that was yep. where this thing starts. Like this whole idea of like assessing people and dating, like they're all just dating things ultimately. And it's, it's makeup club. He was offered, I mean, not to tell my boy's story, but he was offered so much money for makeup club. Mm. And he didn't throughout all this time, obviously before Friendster, before all these things and during it as well. And he never did it. Like talk about punk rock. And he has no, that's as weird thing as I would have. I mean, I, I regret what I did about, you know, <laughs> I regret, I regret what just happened seven minutes ago. Um, but, but he doesn't, man. I mean, that's the thing with that dude and what he's into. Yeah, no, it's special. And there's, you're right. There should be, there should be a book. There should be something. There should be a doc. There should be something about all that time. And then to when, you know, Anthony from the damn personals is like winning an Oscar, mm. you know what I mean? And trying to explain like that of like, you know, whatever, a decade and a half ago, we we're all in the blackout bar. It's just like, it's, it's, it's pretty cool.
Yeah, and I guess going back to kind of touch on what you broached, I mean, like yep. about with with uh, with Big Block when you people wanted to fight you banned, like people wanted to hear you get up on stage and talk about yes. fighting. But when you're living it, I can't imagine you'd want to do that. You know, like it's something where it, it it's like it's like you want to escape from that. Like that's the point of this thing, and not that that's always the case. Like there's definitely hard bands that sing about being hard, right. but a lot of times people that are living it aren't going to be just you know writing ballads about it. No, you're, I mean, yeah, the music was trying to work that shit out. Mm. You know what I mean? The music was literally trying to like, oh, there are things that are broken inside of me. That all comes down to sadness. Like everything, everything comes down to sadness, right? I mean, I think about even my friends and even my, my, I mean, I think they're friends that people would think could be a sociopath, may have done sociopathic things. Mm. Um, and I know that just, they're probably the most sensitive people that i know i mean i was that way if you didn't look me in the eyes and you shook my hand that hurt my feelings i didn't feel seen so i wanted to punch you in the face because that's all i didn't know how to react to things you know i wasn't but it all comes down from being so deeply hurt um and deeply fucking traumatized it all comes down to a trauma and in a lot of it is generational trauma like so many of us you and i and so forth carry trauma from people we never met from their choices from their our great 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 grandparents and so on of choices that they made that we don't even know and we think that we have free will when we really don't and these cycles that are so nearly impossible to break i see it with my boy again as being six months old and i never met my um biological father till a few years ago and I went out to see me. I said, strangely lives in Van Nuys. And I went to go see this dude. And, you know, he's 60 years old. And right when I'm like, oh man, I recognize that look in his eyes. This dude's out of his fucking mind. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's all worked up and he and his uh, girlfriend who's dating this 23 year old white girl and they had uh, got into a fight. And so he's meeting, you know, his son for the first time and he can't sit still because he's wondering where she's at what she's getting into so then he just be getting this adventure in his car driving all crazy through van nuys i'm just like oh this is like ghost of christmas future <laughs> right here and there's just a thing in his eyes my wife sees it and then with our six-month-old boy it's like that dude and i know he's just six months but still it's just like you see this fire in his eyes you know, my wife is just like, oh no, but like what generational thing have we passed on or what my fear of that thing will I pass on? Right. It's so, um, it's so, well, obviously being aware of it and learning, um, how to be, how to show intimacy, going back to Bobby Urban telling me he loved me, um, you know, in 1996 or whenever it was, or the first time I ever heard it, um, through a friend or, uh, like that of like how does that look how does like male intimacy looks and you look back at punk rock and you look back at hardcore and you look back at the people who are my brothers and my friends forever um and then that's all inside there mm -hmm. you know it's all inside there's relationships that you've that we've that we've cultivated like you know forever and obviously it goes across gender lines and all these people in my life by my wife meeting my wife playing in a punk rock band together you know what i mean like that is always this, this culture is just has its fingerprints over every single thing that I do um, and always will. But to your point of that time with Big Block in particular, like that was literally me trying to work out shit. Something's wrong inside me. Something's damaged. Something's broken. Let me scream about it um, and slam a microphone in my face. And then that would get, you know, my beautiful friends worked up sometimes and then she would just like pop off and um yeah and in the yeah and move 
gotten derailed from time to time. And that's why with Righteous Jams, you know, that's what I think was so beautiful to come back to is like there was never, I mean, there was a couple incidents at festivals, right? But they weren't particularly Righteous Jams shows, but that didn't happen at Righteous Jams show. Like there was this chemistry even just between Joey and I and with like with our, with the people, whenever maybe other things were popping off that we could get past that. And it could be this like fun brother and sisterhood, like, and we saw a glimpse of it that you hadn't seen really in the eighties. And sometimes if maybe the kids looked a little like whitier and shinier than I remembered, you know, and maybe a little less damaged, well, a lot of that stuff's inside, right. We can't judge people from the outside. Um, something brings us all to the show. Something brings us all to this. Something brings us to all these things that could, you know, to Drake, could be listen to Drake. <laughs> um, or, but you're not, you know what I mean? You're yeah. somehow here and uh somehow this is repairing or at least exposing something that's fucked up and beautifully fucked up inside you well i guess in in some ways like you know people talk about people self-medicating with alcohol or self-medicating with drugs but like i guess violence can be form of self-medication too in a lot of ways you know and not not to excuse it or to justify it but at the same time it's it is something that you know, if, if, especially if you were raised with it or something that was always a threat, you know, it's going to be something that becomes something that's weirdly soothing, I guess, at a certain level. 100%. And that, again, and it is definitely not uh, excusing of it at all, mm. but, um, but it is true that it becomes like the language. It becomes a language you can very, very comfortable. And I mean, when I went to, you know, I made, a, I filmed uh, my, I made my film like 17 days because I knew I was going to go to prison. Uh, then it premiered at Sundance. And then, you know, I go to prison, you know, a couple months later yeah. and everyone's like, Oh, what was, I'm like, yo, prison is like, I understand that. Like I'm used to that. I felt like a drunk in like a liquor store, you know, all of a sudden I felt like a drunk in a bar. Like I know this, I'm super comfortable with this. Yes. Prison sucks. It's probably the darkest places on earth, whether you're a prisoner, whether you're a warden, a guard, whatever, just is like the worst of humanity. Because, you know, if there is a, God, obviously we are, uh, we are his worst creation and prison brings that out in everybody, um, including myself, but that, but that I'm, I'm more scared walking into a meeting. I'm more scared trying to, you know, talk about art. That's terrifying to me. You know, the other thing, like I'm, yeah, unfortunately like well-versed and comfortable with it. It's like trying to create something that becomes like terrifying to me. Um, I, you know, I've kept you forever, man. And I could talk to you forever. And you know, anytime you want to come back on this thing, uh, the, the door is always going to be open for this. Bro, one, I'm this, no, this has been so awesome. It's been so long overdue. And I actually, cause I'm off, you know, I got off social media, but then I wanted to, uh, for one, for the song, but then also to finally get to do this. So I actually had to make a fake account because <laughs> I really straight edge today. Talk about being addicted to violence. Right. And I 100% was, that was probably the hardest thing ever to to this day still you know that's it's still something i might that's still my default and luckily you know i've been sober from violence for you know almost a while now mm-hmm. um but it's just social media bro like that's it like that's a real yeah. addiction to that dopamine rush right so look in your phone check an instagram it should be like don't drink don't smoke don't fucking scroll <laughs> you know yeah. no definitely and, uh, and it's and because also now they've monetized our individualism to go back to punk, man. It's like this. We had to create our voice, right? We had to start a band, do a fanzine. We had to do these things. And then now it's basically carefully crafting an Instagram persona, you know, making fucking immoral people millions of dollars, right? Well, yeah. um, 
No, what are you going to say? Oh, I was going to go Sorry, 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 Danny. <laughs> oh, I don't know what you're talking about. But um, <laughs> I guess going back to what you're saying earlier, it's like they've they've found a way to monetize our pain and our longing yeah. and our sadness, right? Like, Fuck that's, yeah. That's why we want that dopamine rush. That's why it feels like we can all self-medicate with our phones. It's true, dude. Yeah, think about it. These thieves... Cause they're fucking thieves. These corporate thieves were had the think tanks in a room of how to get us, how to trick our brain chemistry, how to access our brain chemistry to stay on an, on a page or an app for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Right. And what are they stealing from us? The most important thing we have, which is fucking time. Mm -hmm. Like that's all we fucking have. And it's still, I mean, how often do we just fall into this numb black hole. And so literally, I mean, that's, that's, that's real straight edge is just getting off fucking social media. And obviously you know, the internet, I mean, the internet's its own thing, right? Like I, I wish that I'm so stoked when someone puts like a live video of a show I was at 30 years ago. I'm actually, I'm exaggerating. I'm not that stoked, but <laughs> like, oh, cool. This is a video. I guess I'll watch someone sends to me for about 30 seconds, but if there's like some weird, like Soviet era film, I can't find anywhere else. I'm like, this is awesome. Yeah. But you know, is it worth fucking ISIS or QAnon? Yeah. You know, probably not. Yeah. No, I think that's the, the, like it's so funny because like i think in the beginning on the internet it was mainly the punks you know like yeah. i look back yep. on a lot of this stuff and it was like people that already kind of knew you know about you know maybe not everyone and obviously I'm, I'm generalizing here but like you know people that knew what was up and as it's gone on you've just seen more and more normal people get on there that can't figure out what's going on and like you're saying you see the rise of QAnon and isis and all these different things that are stepping in to fill these these trauma voids in people and to oh, be like, yeah we're here like here here we're we're gonna we can use you now like they've they found a way to not just monetize but weaponize yeah trauma. bro you're so right you're so fucking right it's terrifying maybe we're in a world where you can't because in there's obviously the beautiful part as we know as we both probably spent a lot of time on discogs you know what mm -hmm. i mean and i spend um and uh because I can't fit any more t-shirts into my drawers anymore. I've like thousands. Cause that's the other thing is like, if I'm going to buy, I still wear the same shit. I always wore. I still dress the same way I do. Still wear the same band shirts, but now it's cool. I'm going to, I'm going to buy off this kid from Etsy. Like that's awesome. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? I'm not going to have something like that. I can put this money in this person's pocket, mm -hmm. you know, or the same way of like, I'm not, you know, I don't actually don't listen to Spotify. Like, you know, buy stuff on Bandcamp. If you're not on Bandcamp, then I don't know what to do. You know what I mean? It's just like, all those things are so awesome to discover stuff you're right at a really fucking high price <laughs> at a really at a really fucking high price and you don't want to be um and i think it comes down to and if you you have something physical if you have an art if you have something that you have to advertise through social media you have to interact with people like that's great and it's almost like almost it's almost like responsibly doing heroin right so i would say responsibly drinking but it's more it's heroin like fucking social media that trying to fill that black void is like heroin so if you can successfully do heroin because you have to god bless you and godspeed and that's awesome but it's like trying to let these people as less in the door as you know as possible yeah now with kids it's even more it's it's nuts having kids and just being like oh you know we've put the cigarettes in their hands you know we've put, yeah you've, all this stuff has just been because it's it's so much more consumable than than cigarettes are. Cigarettes are harsh the first time you smoke them. It's not harsh to look at a screen the first time. That's so true, dude. No, it's true. And it's like, I mean, having it, and then also, what do you do? Because you can't, 
this is what the world is right now. Mm -hmm. So you can't completely deprive your children of this. Right. And what does that look like? So, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. I think by the time, luckily, you know, Billy Jack's only six months. So I think the world will already be over by the time like, we'll be back to it'll be like Mad Max times by the time he's like five. So there'll be no internet. Hopefully, you don't have to deal with it. Okay, me and my family are coming down to stay with you, and we're gonna yeah, bro, come homestead together. Or something. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, as I say, dude, this has been incredible. Can I ask you like a few more questions? That I've dude, I, literally, I have as much time. I, mean, I don't want to also punish you and make this a four-hour oh, thing. But I have a, I have all night Billy Jack to sleep, so I have as long as you want to hang. Okay, well, I definitely one of the things I wanted to find out about first of all is Yoshihiro Devour from Devour Records. He, he's mm -hmm. the spiritual advisor for Wrecking Crew. Was he still involved with Wrecking Crew when when you were in the band? He was. He was just a dude who was awesome. Okay, he was yeah. just a dude. He <laughs> was awesome. Everybody loved and. Uh, um, yeah, he was more, he was probably on the way out. I mean, because that's the thing is like Wrecking Crew really sort of, uh, I mean, because Dean and I moved, you know, Dean and I uh, had been in Boston for a while. We played in this band, Children, right? With the, actually, uh, the drummer was the brother of Bernard who plays bass in Throwing Muses, which is like the most Boston thing I can say because <laughs> everyone's just connected somehow. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Maze. And uh, um, we're doing really interesting stuff, man. It was like really fucking cool. And then we played with Wrecking Crew and they were like, afterwards, you know, they, hey, let's talk. We want to talk to you afterwards. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and I was like, all right. And Dean and I were stoked. We're like, oh, man, maybe they want to bring us on tour or something. Like, awesome, cool. And we went to talk to them. And then it was, they wanted me to try out to sing for them, uh, which is weird because I was hanging out with Glenn. Like, I wasn't, I was never tight with the Wrecking Crew dudes before. Like, and yeah. Keith Bennett's awesome. Um, and he was just one of those punk and hardcore dudes that would just would talk to anybody when they'd come. He just like knew everyone. He was like that guy. And uh, and one of the few people that got from went from metal to punk that I 100% will always uh, respect <laughs> in that in that manner. Yeah. But um, so we we played and I told Dean I was like, yo man, if this happens, like, don't worry, like I will, I'm gonna get you in the band, right? Dean was my boy, I'm gonna get you in the band somehow because they had some weird Hesher like metal dude playing guitar. I'm like, if I'm gonna be in this band, that dude's gotta go. <laughs> um, and so I did. I tried out and. I'll tell this story. It's up to you whether you want to leave it in or not. <laughs> um, but I was supposed to, we're going to try out, we're going to rehearse on a, on a Sunday, right? They're going to try me out on a Sunday. And so on a um, Saturday, we all go to Portland, Maine, this place Zoots, right? And we go down and hang out with a bunch, we had a bunch of friends down there and even think about these, I, actually a few of them are dead now. Actually, I'm thinking about the story. Um, are we playing? It's like a dance night, right? It's like a dance night. And we're like, cool. We're hanging out. And there's this, um, uh, there's these, these two women, one of which we knew we're all hanging out. And this one girl would just would not give me the time of day, would not give me the time of day. And, um, I was like, I, I'm like, all right. And this is when smells like teen spirit was just taking over the world. Right. Yeah. And so we knew they were going to play this song. And I'm like, yo, when they play this song and these fools, like try to get a little motion, let's just like murder everybody. <laughs> Right. So we're like, you know, we're, so we're there and it starts, you know, and it just right the drums kick in. And then all of a sudden this girl won't pay me any mind starts dancing with me. And I was like, oh shit, dudes, like change the plans, change the plans. I'm like, Ixnay on the murder name, but it was like too late. Everyone's <laughs> killing everybody. Um, so she's like, oh my God, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know what's going on. This is terrible. We should leave. <laughs> uh, so we leave and it was, uh, them and my friend, John Bozak, who, um, 
along with Jocko Willink, it does all of Jocko for Jocko's books, which you should all be reading Jocko's books. Um, and John does all of the uh, illustrations. But we went and hang all this girl, and it was like the worst because she was just like a huge Red Hot Chili Peppers bands just playing them over, which is like a, just torture in its own right. And so we hung out as like young people do. Um, and then the next day we're going back and my mouth kind of feels like a little weird, like a little tingly. I'm like, all right, feels like, like a little hornet's nest, like kind of strange. And then we're driving back. And by the time we get to New Hampshire, it felt like I had like broken glass in my mouth. It was like the weirdest thing and in my throat. And then by the time we get to like, we're there, I'm pulling up to this wrecking crew, uh, rehearsal audition my mouth is all white and cracked and fucked up. I don't know what crazy weird yeast infection thing I got. My mouth is terrible. So I could barely talk <laughs> while I'm trying to do this wrecking. I could barely talk, never mind sing. And it was actually, it was God awful. <laughs> and uh, I don't know why they chose me in the band. I actually had to come back because they realized it was really awful. And I remember asking them about it. I'm like, yo, what do you think this could be caused by? And then I learned, I'm like, Oh, from their reaction, which is so Puritan, I'm like, oh, you got. We probably live very different lives. <laughs> we probably live very <laughs> different lives, guys. And uh, um, but that was it. And then I tried out again. We got in wrecking. I got in wrecking crew. It was the worst thing that ever happened to that band. Uh, I got Dean in about two months later, and uh, yeah, we just went out and uh, we had we had a blast for a while. Even though those dudes, like I said, would play Pantera and fucking listen to metal and fucking steal my soul again while i was trying to listen to like drop dead or something tune them all out um but yeah that's it but yosi here so he was sort of at the end he was around but he wasn't as involved as he was like in that kind of early wrecking crew days it's amazing when you look at like the stuff that that label put out it's just like such a it's so it's so like we're talking about earlier the confluence of all these people like here's this guy in boston who you know puts out you know a bunch of early boston bands has this connection to wrecking crew and then at the same time, it's going back to Japan and involved in this, like, this incredible Japanese stuff that's also happening at the same time. All the Japanese yeah, yeah. Stuff. and power violence, which is way cooler, dude, which is way cooler. I was more into that stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, totally, man. Totally. Um, I also wanted to find out uh, intent to injure. They you guys were connected with them, too, right? Were we? Uh, they, they have a FSU fight song in one of their seven inches. Oh, my God. Who is in that band? I don't know. I, I have to Google that right now. You know, it, and it wasn't, a. I mean, it's, it's like when uh, uh, <laughs> Slapshot also had an FSU song, uh, which is why they couldn't play uh, their own hometown for, you know, close to a decade. Um, and they also put me on, they put me and Shabo, who's dead, uh, on the back of the record cover. I think of the album, you can only see me because they cropped it, but on the CD, you can see Shabo as well in the middle of an awesome brawl. Um, as if we wouldn't put together a song called, you know, L-O-S-E-R, and then our faces on their fucking record. Um <laughs> But uh, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this was a uh, a positive one for us or a, or a negative one. But I don't know. I might I might be just completely ignorant, and they might actually intend. Who the fuck was intent to injure? It would have been like '89 or something. That single came out '90, maybe. It's on Nemesis Records. It's like I think it's their second seven inch. Um, but anyway, I remember I, the I remember the name of the band, but I actually don't remember their. They're kind of raging like they're one of those bands like you're saying like drop dead like that that was like yeah. doing fast kind of old style hardcore um you know even at the time fsu you know, coalition taking out racists i'm looking yeah. at it right now yeah like i don't think it's you know, a negative I'm, song no it doesn't sounds like an awesome song <laughs> yeah 
Um, I 100% and probably know their friends are like, uh, this is probably my own brain just uh, being too far removed. So I'm not sure, but I will actually do some research on this now. Well, I guess that's the last thing I want to talk to you about. You kind of, we come that comes up there is the idea of like, you parsed it earlier with the idea of where being a skinhead was a thing. And then at a certain point, this sort of neo-Nazi virus spreads and it happens in england first like you you can almost track it as it happens and then it eventually comes to america and spreads and i was just wondering how that kind of manifested itself in boston um because that ultimately i guess leads to your involvement in fsu right yeah man it was it was it was weird like i had a i had a um when i was locked up there was this dude that was in the older ward right Mm -hmm. and uh, he was a punk dude mike neal and I remember like, I mean, I was like 13 or something. I don't know. And uh, I'd make these stencils. Like I made like a circle jerk stencil and I'd put it outside. Like you're kind of like room slash whatever it was like cell, but kind of like the room. Um, Cause we were kids. And uh, so he'd walk by and see it when his unit was being moved. Mm. And uh, totally just wanted this guy to think I was cool. Cause he was like 16 or 17. And, uh, and then, you know, he got out before I did. And, you know, years go by, but it's still like, you know, this dude. And I was like, look for my shows. And then at that Descendants show where I, my mom dragged me out, most humiliating, awesome thing ever. Yeah. But um, before that, I kicked this skinhead dude in the face. And, you know, Jim Martin, who does all the uh, drawings and stuff. He did oh, like a lot of the flyers. Yeah. 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 So it was actually him. He was like a skinhead for about you know, I don't know, like a day and a half or something. He got his fingers tattooed. Um, And it was actually him. So we were like squaring off. And then some other skinhead dude who was my boy that I'd been locked up with years earlier. I mean, probably like nine months earlier, it was Alf. And so he was a skinhead now, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to become a skinhead. And, you know, Alf got me out of that uh, situation. Hmm. And, uh, and then you go back, you know, a few years and, you know, we go, you know, we go on, we're all skinheads, we're all hanging out. And I remember he went to Atlanta and I remember he came back and it was with Jocko and I, and he had clan flyers. And I was like, bro, I'm like, how do you like, do you think this is a tan? <laughs> like I was so confused about why he was trying to recruit me for the clan. Um, and then it just, so they, so it wasn't even just like all oh, your brothers it became like someone that was like your idol and hero. And then you're, you know, fighting with people with a dude, you know, with machetes in the fucking back of the anthrax. And then it became like this whole other thing that we have to get rid of this. Um, yeah. So it, it really was, it became like a, a civil war and that, then the birth of the fence Walker for sure. It still exists to this day. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a, a, it, 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 it was a tumultuous time because then there's the other element where you had like really you had sharp skins and I kind of hated sharp skins, right? I kind of hated this like idea of, I mean, I love the idea of it and we had this very same mentality, but it just became something that, you know, to us, it was just like all oh, these dudes just shaved their mohawks last week when the truth of the story is I just shaved my mohawk about, you know, a year and a half ago or something, yeah. you know? Um, but yeah, it was like, it was, a, it, it was, it was a really, really weird time. And it was funny when that shit happened um, with homeboy from YDL from Youth Defense League, when he got, got kind of got outed. And I remember reaching out to him. Uh, and I'm, there's no, there's no excuse for that shit. Obviously I very, it's very, it's very public. I went to prison for it. It's very public of where I stand on this. Um, but also this was a really kind of weird, confusing time. I'm not even confusing. That's not even, it sounds like I'm trying to, confusing isn't the right word. It was just like a weird time where we were all were mixed together. 
right? And it wasn't as black and white as things are now. And you'd be into this and you'd be a black skinhead in the youth defense league. And there's just all this, there's a, there's a, and I don't know, having been in it, I don't know if the light's been turned on because we were killing Nazis then. Like we were getting rid of Nazis. I don't know the lights, but then you, the lights turned on now years later, like, oh no, it is this clear or things were just really kind of fucking messy then. And uh, I just remember reaching out to him like, yo, you and I were always on opposite sides, but you know, I know what you've done with your life now. And, uh, um, and it wasn't even just like, condone, just like, you know, that's it. Like, yo, I see you. I know you changed like this sucks. Um, and he wrote back in a beautiful way of like, yo, man, I, I had this coming. Like, I can't, you know, I take full responsibility for this and however it's going to upend my life now. Um, but it was sort of a nuance. I mean, you have bands coming from New York with, you know, white bands you love with people of color in the band and their roadies were Nazis. You know what I mean? The eighties yeah. were a very strange time. <laughs> and, uh, and I think just towards the end when it came very, very clear of like, Oh no, we are on this side, you're on that side. And then it got, more by the time the early 90s came around 80 you know late 80s early 90s when fsu was around then the line then it became very black and white the 80s was, was a little was a little cloudy at times um you know because you're doing weird shit like wearing i'd wear screwdriver shit all the time to try to draw nazis out you know you'd beat up a uh, dude get a screwdriver shirt you know and then you'd wear it out and try to get someone to be like yeah a rad shirt to get punched in the face you know it was just like strange times um, but then in, in the early nineties, especially around FSU, it became very, very clear, like, oh no, this is a poison. This needs to be out for good. I think that's like the, uh, you know, it's, it's so fascinating when you look back on that stuff, like you're saying, like the, the extreme politics that were coexisting, especially in New York, like yeah. where you could have nausea and YDL on the same comp, you know, 100% playing shows together. 100%. I think that's something that's, and again, this is not excusing it by any means. Like, I hope my track record doesn't sound like I'm ever, you know, sitting on that fence because it's very clear what side I am and will always be on, just even from my fucking DNA and melanin in my skin. But there was, it was just messy. It was like a messy time. And these are people that you're with, you know, you'd been through hell with. You, they were your brothers. You'd discovered punk rock together. You'd had silly more, like all of it. You'd grown up together. And and it was really in the late 80s and it became, it did become a civil war. And I think by, you know, by the time the early 90s came around in certain places and there were these strongholds, you know, when we played with Ignacio Front with the Wrecking Crew, you know, Maddie and I talk about it all the time is when he was in the band, Roger had just gone out of prison, uh, you know, the One Voice Tour, which is, you know, fucking gold, a great record. And uh, it's funny, I get out of prison, I think about Roger a lot. Because what it must have been like for him, because I know what it's like to try to get back and back in the world and just everything everything just changed right the world's gone on the world's moved on without you mm -hmm. um and you're kind of stuck and it's like in some ways it's like being huck finn or tom sawyer at your funeral you know what i mean it's just like yeah. it's just weird when i got out is like instagram had happened just so weird i remember chad from newfound glory talk about you know you know i've known since he was 14 years old from we toured big block and uh he actually got on our bus uh it was a winnebago but um from Dean's dad, because Dean's dad was an auto body guy. But uh, talking about FSU, you guys are from Boston. I hear those FSU guys are awful. I hear they're real jerks. <laughs> I was like a record scratch. I'm like, what'd you say, kid? You know, and he's been one of my best friends ever since. But um, getting out, he was telling me like, yo, I got, you know, something that happened because he'd like something on Instagram. I'm like, what the fuck's Instagram? I'm like, oh, you know, I got, it's this thing. And I, you know, I liked this thing. I'm like, well, how does someone know you liked something? I was so confused. I wasn't gone that long. Everything's moved so fast. Um, 
So I, there's already, so I think I could, you could see that in Roger, who Roger was before. And then now he's obviously back when he was right out when we were on that tour mm. and, uh, and just seeing him try to like assimilate back and this like look in his eyes. Um, but we played Allentown, Pennsylvania, man. And that shit was crazy. And that's actually that, that show we had, we had issues with New York. We had issues with Kev one. We had issues before this. Um, and then there was like a straight, we played, we're all up. It was Agnostic Front, Life of Agony, Sheer Terror, Wrecking Crew. And we played this place. I think it's called the Airport Music Hall. I don't know. That might be wrong. But um, there's an upstairs. And we're up there. We're hanging out. Um, I'm coincidentally enough reading the autobiography of Malcolm X for like the 15th time. Because that's how I learned about Straight Edge. That's how I became Straight Edge just from that book. Um, oh, wow. I read that's awesome. The, when, yeah. When I was locked up, I was like, oh, man, I'm not going to be a pawn for the system. Like, fuck that. And um you know what I mean, Matt? And then someone's like, yo, 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 there's a strip club there. And so you could look into this strip club if you went into this weird part of the attic. So you have all these guys in these two by fours, and some of them are grown ass men. Like some of us are kids, some of us were grown ass men in a line, like little rascals tapping each other on the back. Hey, you've, it's your, you've been too you've been too long now. It's my turn now <laughs> to peek in over the stage. You really couldn't see anything. And uh, like the silliest, most innocent, most ridiculous thing. And uh, and then someone comes running up. We could hear the ground vibrate every once in a while. I didn't really think, you know, I think like a band was starting to play. And then all of a sudden someone runs up like, you guys, come now. And we had heard about Nazis in Allentown. And I'd showed up with my boy, John, you know, who grew up with me and Jocko, I talk about a lot. And he'd come and we'd heard about Nazis. And we saw kids waiting outside the show. And... This one dude, there's this chubby dude with these huge fat braces, right? And like this swastika armband. We're like, this is what everyone's afraid of? Like, are you kidding me? I'm like, all right, whatever. So then, you know, fast forward two hours later, um, and, you know, a one sixteenth of a strip show later, whatever you can see the top of someone's head, and we all go out to sort of this balcony, and there was like, I mean, Matt and I talked about it. It was like 500 people. It's probably like two to 300 people all sig hiling at once. Holy fuck. And dude, it was the most ugly, but most beautiful in the way of seeing human, like all doing one thing at once. It like literally made your stomach, like your bowels just like go. It was like the weirdest thing of like such horror and, uh, and ugliness, but beauty at the same time. Cause you have these, even these girls, uh, you know, with fringes, these young teenage girls like rocking back and forth with this big swastika flag while everyone's screaming, sit, hail, sit, hail. And we're like, oh, fuck. Oh, this is what everybody's talking about. So we went back into this area, you know, we, we could look into the strip club and they were finding like two by fours, finding out everything we'd find for this, uh, for weapons. And Life of Agony was on next, right? And you had a dude from that band, like one of their cousins or something. And me, we're like the only people of color in the whole fucking place. And like, I remember going, we go out to the stage and there's sort of like this barricade there. We're standing there and we know we have pipes. We have whatever else that we found. You know, Vinny was there. Roger actually wasn't because his squat burned down. It was like a terrible night. His squat burned down that same night. And then we found out that our friend Castleneck Mike had shot and killed his girlfriend uh, disgustingly. Um, talk about damage and then uh, boarded himself up in his apartment and then shot himself while the police were trying to break in all in this one night. Um, but we were there. didn't know anything. Didn't know about Mike. Didn't know about any of this at the time. And uh, 
playing and they would they saw me i remember like invasion of the body snatchers like the i know it was an older movie the 70s movie oh yeah they were like pointing at me and skirt like losing their fucking minds man it was crazy like there is one right there and there's like another one you know someone from life of agony that was like on the cusp like a little lighter skin than me and um yeah, dude, it was fucking crazy. And then the see how fuck New York, see how. And they kept pushing and pushing. They broke down one barricade and it fell on the drummer from Sheer Terror. I mean, it was like so crazy. I mean, that dude, they're like, no judgment on anyone. They're fucking tears. Like there's yeah. like, there was like absolute fucking terror. And then dudes that we've been beefing with before, um, particularly Kev One. Uh, DMS all rolled up and we were in the front just like swinging swinging and hitting these people pushing them back and pushing them back and that's for me to be in that situation with those people with these dudes that that stopped any fantasy New York Boston beef that ever had happened before you know this was like we'd been there together we'd been through fucking war together at that point and that killed that shit immediately um where did we end up in that story man uh, I guess I was talking about the rise of the Nazi stuff, but I that's guess that, it. Yeah, that was yeah. so we're that many years later, dude. I mean, that was whatever year that was, 92. I'm not sure yeah. when uh yeah, that was 92 and that when they we're still we're still we're still dealing with that. You know what I mean? That's still that was uh yeah. It, that and it's you're still dealing with it right now. This is the difference that it's so weird that's become so I got outed at one point. There's something that came out and I got doxxed, right? And it was on like one of those white power um uh websites right where they said where i live and they said to go kill uh you know kill me and rape my race traitor wife because my wife is caucasian and um they had the wrong address because i guess they did like a spokio search or something okay. like that so yeah. luckily they had the address of some dude you know who lived somewhere in like the inland empire or something and was randomly like something i don't know it was like 50 something years old at that point i'm like fuck how old do i look but um <laughs> But then when this shit happened with Trump and everything else, like he, Rachel Maddow had directly linked that message board to Steve Bannon. And it's just like, so it's like living in a fever dream, right? Yeah. It's like crazy yeah. living in a fever dream. And it even happens with our friends that we are heroes that we grew up with. And sometimes the things that's why social media is also so toxic and fucking negative, man, of this, the addiction to being triggered and to being emotionally triggered. Right. And these things that this, you know, I was talking to someone the other day uh, about it. We known each other for decades, and and I'm always in punk rock. We're in this thing. I mean, maybe my beliefs have always been very to the left, um, and his more like I think a lot of people from you know the New York area are probably more conservative. Mm -hmm. And but then now it's like this huge gulf has happened. And one thing I said is just like because there's a lie that people like hide behind. It was a beautiful conversation. It was like a brotherhood conversation. Two brothers talking. Um, which is rare these days, but I was like, yo, I get what you guys are saying. Yeah. Cause you hide behind all governments are fucked up. All you're right. 100%. I agree with you. Yes. But I see you attacking Antifa, which is so weird. I see you attacking the left. I don't see you doing the same shit to the right. Cause you're saying we should take that for granted. We don't, you know what I mean? I feel like there has been this swing to this. It's just like so fucked up. Um, but anyway, the whole point of that to be, um, was that this has all been a fucking fever dream. Like here I was thinking they've been out fighting Nazis and this becomes part of your, you know, persona of what, you know, people believe in those. There's obviously so much more darkness. And um, I could even talk with my, my friends and my brothers and what we created at that time. There's so much just like anguish and pain and darkness in there, right? That created this behavior. Um, 
you think it's done, right? You think it's fucking done and it's over. And then it's on a whole other thing. And now it's mainstream. It's so similar to what we talked about um, with this what happened in skinhead culture in America in the 80s and in England earlier is now happened between, you know, you and your uncle. <laughs> it happened yeah. to families. It's happened on this much bigger scale. It's so weird. Well, it's also, it's even more, you know, to add your fever dream thing. It's like, it's even more weird when you add the Gavin McGinnis angle to this whole thing. Yes, I know. Here's a dude coming from the same basement shows that's into the same bands. And yet he's like this zeitgeist of terrible shit now in the mainstream. Like, it's so fucking weird. So weird, dude. And then stole his shirts. I can never wear fucking Fred Perry again. I yeah. blame Canada on that one. I blame I blame Canada on that one, bro. I think you got to take the hit. No, but you're right. That is 100%. That is so fucking, it is so weird. And then, but even these conversations have become that like you have with normal people now. When normal people know about this stuff. Like when like, there's no, and to me, I have my own prejudice always about, that's the worst thing you could be to me is normal. Like people, I remember thinking with friends, you'd have like that normal friend that you grew up with. And I'd hang out and be like, oh, you're making me nauseous right now. <laughs> you know what I mean, I just can't, I can't think of that mentality. But then now they've co-opted all of our shit. Now they've downed from a cab to this other side of these normal, lame, mediocre <clears throat> white dudes have now co-opted this Fred Perry look and co-opted all this. Yeah, it's fucking weird, dude. I think. I think I you know what happened. You know what I think this is what happened, bro. I think fucked up and righteous jams were on tour. I think we got hit by a Mack truck, and this is just a weird fever death dream we're having. Yeah, it can't I, be real. I sometimes feel that legitimately uh, in a way that I wish was far more joking than it is. But it kind of brings up what we were talking about earlier about this thing about punk that's also kind of amazing where it is almost this fantasy myth building you can build your own world and that's what makes yep. punk great because you build your own scene but that's what all those dudes have done and they bought into gavin's fantasy about what this fucking like screwdriver is the ultimate cosplay band ever when you look uh, at the history yeah. of that band and get into like yep. who these people were it's, yep. it's not real it's all no. just like, it's terrible and that's a reality but it's not right. real it's more fantasy 100 you're right it's a fantasy to bring it back to that it's they may as well be singing about fucking dungeons and dragons but look at yeah. the damage that came out of that yeah and you're right with gavin with this uber uh macho fake uh masculine like all that bullshit like these weak men that fall into that it's like so fucking gross but also really fucking also terrifying of the damage and you never thought you'd be scared of you know dudes in khakis holding fucking you know lawn torches or, or lawn fucking tiki torches um but then look what happens with and then and then look what happens then looks what looks what happens in charlottesville so and the fact that it has they've co-opted something that means so much to us that you've had now hundreds of people on to talk about from all walks of life right um on your show about how this is it this is the real culture beyond color beyond your uh ethnic identity like this is at least for me this is my culture this always will be like we have this we have this language um that has been co-opted with this painted with this disgusting fucking brushes he's gonna want to punch people in the face again honestly i gotta say damien if, if anything's happened for this podcast i think i'm gonna regress <laughs> <laughs> i think uh you know i, I think i'm gonna leave my mid-century modern house right now <laughs> in the canyon and uh go punch some motherfucking nazi in the face well you know not to not to further stoke that flame but 
you know, it's, it's, but I almost maybe to, I don't know, I don't know, put the flame out. I don't think that's possible. But at the same time, I think to like, I don't, just to kind of bring it back to the trauma piece, like you look at what's his name, Mickey Crane, Nikki Crane, the head of screwdriver security. Mm-hmm. And you look at this guy's life story where this is obviously a guy who was, you know, because it's all come out now. There's a BBC documentary about it where he was gay and he was at the same time. Oh, he was yeah, I did. Gay. I read that. Yep. yep. Yeah. And he was, he was bashing men for being gay and, yeah, and attacking yep. gay men. Like, so clearly this guy's dealing with some intense trauma and inflicting this trauma on people that no one's again, not justifying or excusing what he's doing. Yep. And nope. he's a terrible human being, but it's, it's just like, you know, but you don't hear Gavin bringing that up. You know, you don't hear that no. being brought into the conversation ever. No, you're so true, dude. You're so true. Like how already this, it was so, um, even at its core, at its genesis is already broke, is already broken. It's already rotten. Right. And it's not what you think of. And when they go to grab this fruit, it's actually just fucking rotting inside because it already started there. And it does. And that's what becomes, it does become complicated because it's not excusing. You can understand people's where it comes from. You can have like empathy for that as opposed to sympathy. I know that's like a cliche, but it's really true. Like it's, it is understanding of where this sort of pain um, comes from and this inner torment. And then what that looks like when it comes out <laughs> in this horrific way with really, he could, that dude just could have loved who he wanted. If he could have verbalized that, you know, if he could have like, Oh my God, the world, the world, who knows what impact that had. Cause I, something is, I think also as you get older and think listening back um uh even to like some of the podcasts or not listening back listening to them it's like you start to notice certain threads there's a couple uh because nancy mentioned it i think kevin seconds has mentioned it but it was like the led zeppelin tour where um they got canceled Mm. right because roger plant's son died Mm. and then how that sort of changed their musical journey there's there's so many little steps i know it's like sort of like the butterfly effect but it's really true so you think about if you take out these certain things of what would have happened i think as you become older now you have families like we have that it also becomes very like you just change something else and something could be different so if you change you know whatever impact whatever comfort they felt having some savage like nikki crane you know what i mean and having that guy front and center like maybe everything fucking changes who knows yeah, no, it definitely, well, or if, if men were able to express intimacy with each other and yeah. like, you know, or like or the, all these things, like, it's just, I don't know. It, it's a, there's been an incredible yeah, conversation. If, yeah, dude, if I could have, if someone could have, I could have understood that, then maybe I wouldn't have heard. I love you for the first time after I just beaten up one of my favorite bands, the meat bed <laughs> like that. Like maybe I could have yeah. just heard that years earlier. And then I could have just been like, oh man, I finally get to see Tesco V. This is awesome. Instead, you know history changed yeah yeah uh well once again this has been one of the the great kind of conversation i've gotten to have on this thing and you're always welcome back but Thank last you. thing before i let you go yep. uh robert redford i was reading in vanity fair about your i guess uh, a mentorship where, yep. with robert redford and once again that to me is mind-blowing first of all does he like punk second of all <laughs> how did that whole like thing come about that relationship dude i came out here and i was i'll tell you know the, the quick story um but I, you know i came out here my what my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife we packed everything we had in our van i had to get the fuck out of boston i'd made promises to my mom um and i'm sorry and i know that it, everything happened really quickly with your mom and i'm so sorry i'm glad that she got to see you accomplish stuff but i'm sorry that you didn't get more of that 
that I goodbye. I think that, you know, but I, and you know, not to derail it, but I think that's oh. also, I think there's no good way to lose the mom. And I think, right. Right. I look at the alternative and I've looked at friends that went through the alternative and granted you do get that, that preparing, not you're never prepared, obviously, but like you get that sort of, you know, moment with them still. Um, and I didn't get that, but at the same time, because it happened the way it happened, I think it, it, it was almost like the bandaid came off quick. I don't know. There's no, I, yeah. I, it seems so weird to try and put this in these terms, but like, right. You know, like I, I really do look at it. Like, I think she would have preferred it to be the way she went. Like, yeah, I, I, and I mean, I not, at, not, that makes sense. I think you're right. There's no good way. There's no, I mean, obviously there's no good way, but there is something about, yeah, it's yeah. awful either way. It's all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when when my mom got she uh, she um, and this will tie into the story, I promise. But um, I was on tour, and we we're playing New Jersey or something, and I got the call that she was in the hospital. She'd already beaten cancer twice, and um, so I went to go see her. But I went to the city, right? And I was going to take the train to the city. I sorry from the city to see her. And I was walking up and down because I'm like, I have fucking tattoos. I'm a dirtbag. I'm a piece of shit. And my mom's dying. And I'm like, I don't want the nurses. My mom's going to be embarrassed of me, which she never would have been ever. But in my head, I'm like, oh, I want to, you know, let me, I got to grab a shirt. So I'm going to like H&M. I'm trying to find a shirt and I have a lot of, you know, money. I'm trying to buy a shirt for like, you know, for the $36 that I have mm -hmm. um, that can cover my tattoos. And I look and I look and I'm doing, it's taking forever. And I end up missing my train. So I have to take a later train. So by the time I get there, uh, visiting, I have like 20 minutes of visit with her and um. And it was even less. And that's why my sisters were looking like I was a fucking dirtbag because I was late. My mom wouldn't care, but I was so fucking embarrassed that I was like, you know, I was a dude in a gang on tour, living with eight people, um, just nothing for her to ever be proud of. And so I didn't really, I only got those last 15 minutes with my mom. And then that night is sort of, she lost the ability to sort of speak. And I got to spend the next three weeks with her in the hospice, but I made that promise like i was going to change my life i was going to change things you know i'd literally just started dating this girl in my band and i promised like i'm going to do i'm going to do these things i'm going to become something you can be proud of and uh and she did squeeze my hand so i do think that she could you know heard um and it was three weeks of just watching and you're right i think there's no good way because then it took a long time to get rid of that visual imprint um but at the same time you got yeah man you're right there's no good way <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's only awful. But, um, but then I, so I went back to Boston, like, yo, I got to make these changes. And, and then it was really hard still living there. I couldn't, because then you get a call at 2am, 3am from your brother. And I'm like, Oh, I got to go handle this. I got to do this. And I'm like, yo, I really got to get the fuck out. And there's funnier stories we can get into later about how we did it. Um, including beating up, uh, trying to get a camera and uh, girls gone wild were on the street once on Lansdowne street. And I'm like, cause I want to figure out how to make a movie. I'm like, Oh, let's just go beat them up and smash their cameras. And, um, and uh, we weren't the first person to think about it because they had these coaxial cables. And it's a funny story. And my friend Colin of Arabia, and I'm sure you know Colin is just like fucking legend. Um, but anyway, I'm like, I got to get the fuck out. So we did. We finally packed everything we had into a van and drove out to LA with our dog, Myra. And get out here like, how the fuck do you make movies, man? I don't know how to make movies. I don't know anybody in this town. And there's a guy who'd actually been um, in the, this kid, Jeff Palkovich, but he'd uh, always given out free records and he played a little bit with the Boss Tones. Hmm. So 
kind of met up with him and talking to him and they're like oh this story about your life and long story short and this film got put together with nick cassavetes was going to direct and i was you know his mom jenna rollins is my favorite actresses and obviously his dad nick cassavetes um and justin timberlake was going to play me which is just so ridiculous <laughs> and uh and it's such a different time so i'm like yo that dude's white and they're like the studio's like yeah but he's got he's kind of got like a brother card and i'm oh like hi God. yeah i'm like i guess so i'm like are you sure um but anyway, long story short, I was just like, I'd feel so sick to my stomach and I'd have to go tell these stories when we went to go pitch it before we ended up at Fox about, you know, people I love dying, but my mom dying, you know, and I was just like the dumb, I say this a lot, but I was like the dumb gang guy in the room to give it a little credence. I'm like, yeah, I smashed this dude in the face with a brick. And then, you know, my friend Danny died and it fucked me up and then my mom died and just like, I just, we get sick every time. And the uh, father was like, you know what, fuck this. I'm just going to do this myself because I was going to write or direct and I'm like, fuck this. I'm going to write it myself. I was repped at William Morris, which is obviously a big agency out here. Mm. And then I told them, I called up my agent. I'm like, yo, man, fuck this. I'm going to write this shit myself. Everyone thinks I'm crazy. My girlfriend is the only one who believes in me. And then I was no longer repped at William Morris because they didn't believe in me either. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just like, fuck, well, how do I do this? And I want to tell a story about me and my best friend. My best friend Bruce that I brought up a couple of times and just like what happened to us with these New England kids that end up in Boston and like, uh just our friendship and you know the just yeah all of it man and trying to talk about male intimacy and i'm like i don't know how to do this man and um we were in the salt and sea because we'd read in this book about california don't go to the salt and sea after dark it's scary so my girlfriend at the time maybe my wife at this point was like yeah let's go we went and it was like dusk bro and there's this girl on the back of this dude's bicycle and she she's like probably 14 and she had cigarettes rolled up in her sleeve and she's sitting on the back pegs and i was like oh i know her like that's me like you can see the fire in this girl but she's probably gonna just die in this town and that's fucking what i was in my small town man i just craved concrete i craved cement i craved the city and i was stuck around you know i was listening to fucking like i said conflict uh you know saying you're nicked you're nicked to my fucking pigs <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> it sheep um and then i got out in the world and it chewed me up and spat me the fuck out it fucked me up you know what i mean it devoured me and what i wouldn't do and i've said this a lot too like what i wouldn't do to be able to go back and be playing in the backyard and have my mom call me in you mean to be, to be out singing conflict to the pigs and sheep you know yeah. um i'd give everything in the world for that um so here was the story so i wrote this thing and then obviously when a weird ex-gay or gang member um writes a script about two 13 year old girls like no one cares <laughs> no one gave a fuck and uh and it died and it got into the hands long story short of robert redford and this woman michelle satter who read who run this uh sundance feature lab and they changed my life they plucked me out they changed my life uh i went to the labs which is this thing and you made a lot of people way more talented than me from you know paul thomas anderson quentin tarantino etc i've gone through the same program and um usually people have like obviously like everyone there had their mfa you know everyone else had like had their masters people had already done films and i was the only one who hadn't and and you go there and it was the first time i never brought a weapon anywhere to go to the this mountain that robert redford owns you know a big chunk of in utah mm. and i was packing and i'm like yo i'm like all right well you know i have my padlock and then i have my bandana i'll put them separate and, I, and i'm like oh i probably don't need this which sounds funny, but it was like kind of terrifying. I'd never gone anywhere without some sort of weapon since I was a kid. And 
And that happened to go back to violence, not to backtrack. I knew I said this would be a short story, but I completely 100% lied. And I apologize. Sorry. Oh, go sorry. On, man. Don't worry. Don't. <laughs> but no, it's like the violence is a drug. Like you're saying, like it's it's hard to let that thing go. It's hard to let that go. And I learned being the victim of it as a kid of looking at my little boy. And that's how it breaks you and heals you at the same time. Because I look at him and I'm just like, how could someone damage something? Like, how could someone do the things that happened to you? How could someone do that to this child, to this innocence, to like... Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Obviously, having a kid is hard, but that it makes you, and I don't know if it's been like this at all with your relationship. Um, but it becomes very much like, oh, I get it. It's hard, but also fuck you. <laughs> like, yeah. fuck you. Um yeah. yeah, it definitely changes the way like like anyone that hurts a child now. Like it's you always are like, well, those are terrible human beings, but right. It now it's it adds a an added dimension to it. Adds it one hundred, and even if that just means just leaving. Even it means yeah. just leaving, you know yeah. what I mean? Never mind yeah. even beyond that physically and violently, but even just emotionally, I agree. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, so I, so I let my thing and I show up and everyone's really smart. Everyone's super smart. And being from Boston, everything is always like, oh, you think you're better than me? Oh, you're fucking thinking you're better than me? Oh, with your fucking big headphones on, Damon, you think you're fucking better than me? Yeah. And uh, I... Uh, and I, that's all came up because everyone was better than me. Everyone was smarter than me. And I was like, yo, I need to not fuck this up. Like, just fucking chill. And um, and I went the other way. I was too nice. You have all these advisors. What happens? You have all these people very, very accomplished and done all these things. And they give you their, you know, they go through your script with you and stuff. And I was taking it. I'm like, oh, my God. Yes. Thank you. Oh, that's so. Oh, my God. You did this. Oh, yes. Thank you. And just like bending over backwards, twisting yourself in a pretzel because I don't know how to be i only know how to be one thing or the other i didn't know how to be somewhere in the middle and the woman who runs it with robert Redford took me aside and she's just like yo you need to be fierce like we know you don't know everything but you're punk rock you know this in your gut just listen to your gut it was the most important thing anyone's ever said to me and so when i sat down with robert and because one other thing that happened this is in the director's lab which came second but basically what happens they have a whole day that's just cinematography Right. And this amazing human Hungarian filmmaker named Jula Gazdak. And he teaches everything about cinematography and all these things. And he's talking about lighting and he's saying, like, hey, you know, we do this, you know, your grip will take care of this. And I was like, all right, man, like, this is my shot. Like, this is where I can really grow because I don't know what the fuck a grip is. So I'm going to raise my hand. I'm going to ask him what a grip is. My fears, everybody's going to laugh. There's no way everyone's going to laugh. Obviously, this is a safe space. They keep telling me this. So I raise my hand. I'm like, ah, actually, I'm like, Jula, I'm like, what is a grip? I actually don't know, bro. And everyone fucking laughed. Everybody in the room fucking laughed at me because they thought I was, I had to be joking, right? Yeah. Why the fuck are you here? Um, and to this point of to then Robert Redford uh, and this woman, Joan Darling, who I won't punish everyone with, but she's an amazing mentor. And she was the first female television director. So she really took me under her wing. She's like, yeah, you may not know everything. I'm going to teach you everything I can. She's like, but I was a woman. Imagine that <laughs> um, in 1970. Um, but with Robert, he's, you know, we had, uh, um, it was phenomenal. So basically what happened to answer your question, spent a lot of time with, uh, with Robert Redford and there's one lunch in particular and I went and I wanted to just tell him that I deserved that he didn't make the wrong, he didn't make a wrong mistake with me or he didn't wrong mistake. He didn't make a mistake with me. Right. I wanted to validate that I was there. They, I don't know. I just went, he sat down with me and I'm looking at him and I, you know, still missing my mom so bad. Just remember watching obviously the sting and Butch Cassidy as a little kid, like in my head on her lap, it just, it's just so many things at once. And then he's also Robert Redford, the most handsome man in the world, even yeah. at 70 or whatever. Said. Um, 
And then, and just going and going and going is obviously, you know, I have through all this and I apologize to get fired up. Dude, don't and, worry. And he's just like, he's like, first off, Elgin, you need to listen. And secondly, and I told him, I mean, we just talked about a bunch of stuff and he's just like, so he's like, you're stunted. He's like, when you're seven years old, um, all the, you know, this, and this when I came vegetarian, you know, obviously been vegan for, you know, very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the animals, my animals, my only friends, like I said, I was getting called nigger and spick every time I went to school and out into this, you know, farm town and I'd come home and especially the pigs and Bubba, my one pig is like my homie. Um, they're my world. And then to see them rounded up and to get slaughtered, like fucked me up. I was like, Oh, adults are the fucking adults are evil. And it fucked me up. And obviously, so I've always been, you know, in the animal rights and everything since. And then the same way of like my father's issues that he had with drinking and with chemicals and, um, and et cetera, et cetera. And he just broke it down. He's like, everything you do is like, you're just a stunted seven-year-old child. These are all things that happened to you as a child. And you're stuck in that. And you never paid attention to what your mom did. Cause my mom was a Quaker. Like my mom was just like amazing hundred pound. My dad was like an almost 300 pound monster throwing tantrums, right? As like a child, I would just come in and throw tantrums and he'd throw tantrums over to bring it back to this, to the records I was listening to this, to everything um, was in a front to him. And my mom was this quiet woman when our, when our sheep would die in the winter, because we can, we can afford grain. We ended up losing the farm where, we you know, they didn't have the $12,000 to pay for uh, the taxes that they owed. So we lost the farm. And she was out there in the winter, this hundred pound woman with a shovel digging into the dirt because she didn't want me to know because she knew how upset I'd be. And he didn't want to have me to do it when I was nine years old. So he was like, you've missed the whole time. You're so obsessed what you didn't get or what your father did. You didn't pay attention to your mother. He's like, you're at a choice. You're at a crossroads. And I've been talking about violence. and like, oh, you know, sometimes this is what has happened. There's violence created the world and all this bullshit. And he was just like, yeah, you're at a crossroads, man. He's like, you got to make a choice. You can still continue to be a child because what happens is you're seven. And then all of a sudden you're 19 and you're a grown man. And you're still trying to punish the world for what happened to you when you're seven. And all of a sudden you're 27 years old. You're sitting here in front of me and you're still talking about violence. And you're still talking about how some people have it coming. And, you know, the whole thing about giving the karmic wheel a nudge when people get all that bullshit. And he's like, you can do that. He's like, you can follow your mom. You can be an artist. It's on you. Uh, and it was the most generous crazy thing plus it was from robert redford so anything yeah. he said was going to get through <laughs> um but that's a man who does not waste a time he's someone you when you ask hey how you doing he's going to tell you exactly how he's doing he has no he's incredibly shy hmm. um he's incredibly shy man so our bond was very real um and i took a vow of nonviolence on that mountain with him and it fucking changed my life completely and then i came home and it was about i was about to go to another lab through them for a composer lab and then uh we just had budgeted my film little birds at a million and a half we just found all the money and i went out to walk my door so i was going to work with a composer later he's going to come over at two it was like one o'clock i walked out i'm walking my two dogs um chopper and nell and then all of a sudden it was like a cbs procedural and fbi agents came out of nowhere like i got caught slipping <laughs> i was so i'm like i'm in like robert redford world you know i'm like it's sunday i'm like i'm an artist um and uh, then all of a sudden, it was just your Mr. James. They had their guns drawn. They had the bulletproof vest. They had FBI and the windbreakers. I was just like, oh, it's all gone. Ah, man, that was going to be really cool. It's all gone now. But uh, and but through all of that, 
through the case, through everything, Robert Redford and the Sundance Institute stayed with me through prison. They're the ones sending me books, uh, sending me letters, um, when everyone else sort of like died off, of course, because that just happens. It's no judgment. It just happens. Um, and they always stayed out and they've always been uh, they've always been home. So that's that's it. Robert Redford, this man <laughs> who I watched growing up with my mom um, completely is uh, the person who changed and uh, in many ways saved my life. That's amazing. And and it's also kind of like, I guess, reflective of what we're talking about, punk in general, being this sort of like, you know, confluence of like art meets street. Like here you are. Mm-hmm transcending to the art side of things and there's also the street side of things still part of your life at this point yeah and he was a brawler dude he's a dude from long beach he was in that's a, a, to the point of that he was really blue collar and really working class and that's his mentality and so i don't know if he is into punk rock probably not yeah. um <laughs> but there's something very when you talk to him he's not a movie star he's very much like uh, this is how you, it's because it's diy right that's what it all is that's what sundance is sundance is just diy in another level this dude started a festival when one didn't exist like it in the world because he wanted real art to be shown and real films are made. And he made the Institute because he didn't want to have to have it just be the Steven Spielbergs and et cetera of the world. He wanted to find filmmakers. Um, there's an indigenous program. There's a trans program now. There's everything. And that they, they took a chance on me who had nothing, I had nothing to show that I was had any worth in the world. And, uh, and they, and they, um, you know, they took a shot at me and that's fucking, that's fucking DNY. So basically that's his fanzine. Sundance film as well as his, his Robert Redford's uh, fanzine. Well, and also now I can connect Robert Redford to Gigi Allen in two moves. Fuck, bro. You're so right. Holy shit. It's, it's, there we go. <laughs> uh, dude, this has been incredible. And, you know, anytime you want to come back on here, uh, you're more than welcome. Uh, thank you, brother. I really, really appreciate it. I like, yeah. Thank you. Your podcasts are so amazing. Always makes like, always feels like home listening to them. It always surprises me a lot of people that I didn't know or people that I kind of like, you know, I don't know. It just feels there's just, you're keeping this thread and this connection alive with people. So thank you. And of course my brother and my friend, congratulations on all of your success. It's so awesome. I love bragging about you. Thank you, Elgin, for coming on the show. And you're right there. Elgin will be back for part two at some point in the future because, uh, yeah, a lot more to talk about. And thank you for the kind words at the end, man. That was so, so nice of you. All right. And uh, speaking of things coming up, coming up in a few short days, my friend, also Elgin's friend too, from the band H2O, a legend on Turned Out of Punk. Go back and listen to Chris Gethard's first appearance on the show uh, to hear tale of it. And uh, someone that was incredibly nice to me as a young person growing up. And a, and, a, and a key kind of figure in shaping how I want to interact with people as someone in a band. Toby Morris will be on the podcast from One Life, One Chance podcast. From his, uh, obviously the band H2O from you know he's toby morris it's a legend and this is a it's a a great conversation i'm very excited for you to hear it i feel like we're on a great streak right now here at turn out of punk we got a lot of fun episodes coming up and and you know a lot of good ones thank you to tristan shout out to tristan for making uh a lot of this happen you know even even elgin elgin's like my my friend you know and we he and i had had the hardest time putting together Tristan comes in, works with his people. Here he's on the podcast. So rekindling friendships. 
Thank you, buddy, for that. Love you, man. All right. That is it for today's episode. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. Uh, We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards Asian people and people of different faiths. and, and, And just we need to stop that kind of hate because it's not this isn't political. This is human rights issues. Like this is, this is far beyond political. This is how important people just need to be able to live their lives as best they can. You know, um, we also on this podcast, obviously should go without saying, uh, respect people's rights to choose what they want to do with their reproductive systems. And yeah, so go out. If there's organizations that are doing work in any of these areas that you support or feel like need support, lend your support. You know, it could be financial. It could be just your time. Could be, you know, it could be it could be anything. So you know, uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. It's just literally dead weight in your body. You know, so why the fuck not? You know, they don't come in that you need them. It's not like that Monty Python sketch that you can't do this on television ripped off. Yeah, I saw you. You can't do that on television. I knew what you'd do. I knew what you were doing the whole time. Ripping off Monty Python sketches and forcing them on Canadian kids. Expecting us not to know the shit. Anyway, sign your organ donor cards. Uh, go there and make your own culture. To quote Tony Erba from Nine Chucks Terror. Anyone can do this shit. Anyone. Sort of band, sort of fanzine, you know. I guess I paraphrased Tony Herbert. I think he was saying more start a band, start a fanzine, if I remember what it was. Um, but anyway, you know, it'll help your mental health doing this stuff. And speaking of stuff that helps your mental health, try meditating. I, I came to it, you know. There's also like a, a heavy-duty other thing I want to talk about involving psychedelics. But I'll say that for a different podcast. It's for a different place. But But meditating is strongly recommended. Nothing to do with psychedelics or anything like that. Just meditate. Try it. Who knows? It might not fucking work. I didn't think it was going to work and it worked for me. And that's it. Stay safe. Thank you very much for listening. And I will see you on the next episode.